The U.S. economy grew faster than expected in the final months of last year. Consumer spending remains high in part because many Americans have seen their paychecks grow. People's wages are now rising consistently stronger than inflation, so their purchasing power is improving. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. America's economic buoyance coming up. Alabama plans to execute Kenneth Smith tonight using nitrogen hypoxia. It's the first time the method has been used and there are big concerns about the way it causes death. And bipartisan Senate talks to reach a deal on border security are near collapse as top Republicans don't want to vote for a deal if Donald Trump opposes it. It's 401. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Electioneer politics surrounding immigration could upend months of talks over a foreign aid and border security package, just as congressional negotiators are close to finalizing the text on a bipartisan deal. Punchbowl News first reported that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell cited the need to not undermine former President Donald Trump, who wants to build his campaign for the GOP presidential nomination around immigration. The spokesperson for McConnell did not dispute the report when NPR asked for comment. NPR's Eric McDaniel has more on what's at stake for new migrant arrivals, U.S. border communities, and the politics of an issue in a year where Americans may once again see a Biden-Trump rematch. Negotiators agree that the status quo at the U.S. southern border is not sustainable. As many as 10,000 people present themselves to border protection agents each day, overwhelming available resources. But in a presidential campaign year facing opposition from GOP frontrunner Donald Trump, there are real questions about whether a deal can get done. Democratic negotiator Chris Murphy indicated the ball is now in Republicans' court. We have produced a compromise that they asked for with the chosen negotiator that they appointed. And it is now up to them as to whether they want to accept the agreement. Draft text of the deal is expected as early as next week. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, the Capitol. Today, Trump testified briefly in his own defense in the defamation case brought by writer Eugene Carroll. Here's NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Out of the presence of the jury, Judge Lewis Kaplan sternly instructed the defense Trump could not deny that he had sexually assaulted Carroll in a department store dressing room in the 1990s because a previous jury already found that he had. He did it, and that's the law, Kaplan said. Have you personally made him aware of the restrictions on his testimony, he asked Trump's attorney, Alina Haba. While she was trying to answer, Trump could be heard to say from the defense table, I have not met the woman. I don't know who the woman is. But on the witness stand, he said only that he stood by a taped deposition he gave to Carol's lawyers and that he denied her allegations from the White House because, quote, I just wanted to defend myself. After a brief question from Carol's lawyers, it was over in minutes. Trump left the courtroom repeating, this is not America. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. The U.S. is planning talks with Iraq on how to bring an end to the longstanding American-led military coalition in Iraq. NPR's Greg Myrie reports the goal is a new security arrangement between the two countries. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says in a statement that talks will begin within days to work out what he calls a, quote, enduring bilateral security partnership. The U.S. still has about 2,500 troops in Iraq. They're part of an international coalition sent there a decade ago to fight the Islamic State. The coalition defeated the Islamic State, but American forces have remained as part of an effort to stabilize Iraq. NPR's Greg Myrie reporting. You're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says migrants continue to stream into the city and it's falling to local governments to find them a place to live. Wu says national immigration policies are falling short. Here's WBUR's Simone Rios. More than 100 people, including young children, have been sleeping on the floor at Logan Airport. Wu says the city is exploring ways to provide temporary shelter to the migrants, though she's concerned about the city's limited shelter resources, which are also needed by Boston residents. The federal immigration system is having people fall through the cracks and then the actual operational details of how to keep people safe while they are waiting for an answer on whether they can benefit and go through that legal process, that is falling to states and cities everywhere. A bipartisan group in Congress is working on a package to address the immigration problem, though former President Donald Trump is lobbying Republican allies to kill the deal. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Governor Maura Healey says her administration is keeping watch on the financial problems at Steward Healthcare. The for-profit company says it's suffering losses that jeopardize its operations. Steward runs nine community hospitals in the state with more than 16,000 employees. Healy said today that she's focused on protecting patients and keeping the state's health care system stable. A Harvard School of Public Health professor wants to know more about the potential health implications of living near nuclear power stations. Professor Petros Koutrakis says that researchers will conduct two studies. One study will analyze cancer data around some of the active and decommissioned nuclear plants in New England. That includes the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Plymouth. We hope to get this data soon. And we will try to see the effects not just of Pilgrim, but Seabrook and the Yankee power plants on incidence of cancer for men and women. That study could be done by late spring. A second study will involve collecting blood samples from people who live near Pilgrim to look for markers of exposure to radioactivity. That study, he says, should take more time. The MBTA says it's reminding subway operators about looking out for passengers when closing doors. The T-Safety officer said at a meeting today that there have been several instances in the last few weeks with people's hands, legs, and bags getting caught in doors. No one was hurt in any of those incidents. The T says it had about as many of what it calls door incidents last year as it did the year before. 38 degrees in the Boston area. Cooler weather working its way back into the region. Should be cloudy tonight. Temperatures a few degrees lower. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Should have rain tomorrow morning. Tapering off, though, in the afternoon, about 42 degrees for a high. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 406. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Fisher Investments. Fisher's dedicated team of specialists provide resources on investing, retirement income, estate planning, and more. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Since the start of the war in Gaza, tensions between Israelis and Palestinians have been high, and that's especially true for those studying at Israeli universities. In a minute, we'll hear how the conflict is affecting students and teachers at one school. But first, we got some surprisingly good news today about the U.S. economy. It grew faster than expected in October, November, and December. That capped off a year in which the economy grew by 3.1 percent. And that would be strong enough growth at any time, but especially in a year of high interest rates, which many forecasters worried would tip the economy into recession. And what's more, even as the economy is growing rapidly, inflation continues to moderate. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott. Hi, Juana. 
So, Scott, the U.S. economy has been consistently outperforming expectations. Tell us what's behind that. Well, the biggest factor is you and me and all of our friends and relatives who keep on shopping and going out to eat and taking trips and generally just keeping cash registers ringing. Uh, Chief economist Mark Zandi, who's at Moody's Analytics, says part of what is fueling all that strong personal spending is a very solid job market. Uh, the, the economy's adding lots of jobs and paychecks keep getting bigger. Good news on that front is that people's wages are now rising consistently stronger and inflation, so their purchasing power is improving. And of course, that's the fodder for spending. If people's real incomes are improving, uh, they're going to spend, and that's what they're doing. Consumer spending accounts for almost 70% of the overall U.S. economy, and it's proven to be remarkably durable. Uh, We saw blockbuster growth in the late summer and early fall, and that only slowed down a little bit as we moved into the winter months. The holiday shopping season turned out to be very strong, and that means the economy entered the new year with pretty good momentum, at least as far as consumers are concerned. And Scott, if household spending makes up nearly 70% of the economy, how's the other 30% doing? It's doing pretty well uh, as well. Government spending rose in the fourth quarter. So did business investment. Exports were also up. Sandy says even the housing market, which has certainly been weighed down by high interest rates, was not as big a drag in the fourth quarter as you might have expected. Housing usually in a high rate environment gets crushed. It's the thing that drives the economy into the ground, into a recession. And that just didn't happen this go around. Mortgage rates did come close to 8% back in October before falling back a little bit. Uh, And as a result, a lot of people who already own homes didn't want to sell and give up their cheaper mortgages. But on the flip side, builders have been putting up a lot of new homes. And thanks to all that new construction, housing actually made a small positive contribution to GDP growth at the end of last year. The reason interest rates are so high is the Federal Reserve is trying to crack down on inflation. How's that going? You know, the numbers in today's report are actually pretty encouraging on that score. Uh, They show that core prices, that is, the prices for everything but food and energy, which bounce around a lot, rose at an annual rate of just 2% over the last six months. That is right in line with the Fed's inflation target. Uh, Inflation has generally been trending down over the last year. And if that continues, then we would expect the central bank to start cutting interest rates sometime later this year. Now, given the strong job market and the very strong GDP growth, I think the Fed's going to be careful not to cut rates too quickly. Uh, Policymakers don't want to take their foot off the brake only to have inflation come roaring back. But right now, there doesn't seem to be any sign that the economy is boiling over. Rather, it's on a nice, steady simmer. Uh, Inflation's easing up. Unemployment is staying very low. That's kind of the textbook definition of a soft landing. NPR's Scott Horsley. Scott, thank you. You're welcome. Jewish and Palestinian citizens of Israel have shared an increasingly tense space since the Gaza war began. That's especially true at Israel's universities, which teach both Arab and Jewish students. NPR international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam reports from Israel's northern port city of Haifa. The University of Haifa sits high on a hill overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, offering spectacular views for its 17,000 students. This is Israel's most diverse university. About 40% of the students here are Palestinian citizens of Israel. It's a place where you can hear both Hebrew and Arabic, and where learning overrode many of Israel's deep divisions. That is, until October 7th, when Hamas militants attacked Israel. 
The university felt the impact immediately, when some Arab students were accused of posting pro-Hamas comments on social media. Daniel Amar, a Jewish student, is the head of Haifa University's student union. For example, one student uploaded a story, which in the story you can see uh, IDF vehicle, burn military vehicle from the October 7th, and she wrote, the happiest day of my life. We can't accept it. The university suspended at least eight Arab students for their social media posts and launched a disciplinary review. Amar says it was the correct move. It's a clear statement, okay, from the university that we will not support terror and terror supporting in our campus. But others disagreed with the disciplinary actions. 25 professors from the university, many of them Jews, wrote a letter to the rector urging the school to investigate what happened rather than automatically throwing the Arab students out. Assad Ghanem, a professor of comparative politics, was one of the Arab members of the faculty who signed the letter to the rector. He also wrote privately about his concerns to the chairman of the university's board of directors. And he was very negative in his reaction towards me because I think that he thinks that university should be part of the war situation, of the emergency situation, which is, I think, that it's a mistake. The university should be part of thinking about ways of reconciliation and helping our students. The backlash against Arab students stretches far beyond Haifa University. The estimation of the Arab-Palestinian Student Union is around 150, 160 cases. Adi Mansour is a political and civil rights attorney with Adala, an organization which advocates for the rights of Palestinian citizens of Israel. He says it's not unusual to see a crackdown against Arabs whenever there's a war with Hamas or Hezbollah. But Mansour says this is the worst he's seen it. In previous wars, we've never seen universities and colleges operate in such a way against their own students. This is by far the first time that we see this large amount of disciplinary procedures against students for expressing themselves. On a clear afternoon earlier this month, Arab and Jewish students sat side by side enjoying an outdoor lunch. It looked peaceful, but fear and anti-Arab sentiment is being whipped up on social media by students belonging to far-right organizations on campus, according to Yuval Schlizel, with Standing Together, a social movement working for peace between Jews and Arabs. The far-right organizations, they started to convince the other students, now we, ju we don't just fight against the terror organization Hamas, we also need to fight against the terror supporters, so-called, here in Israel. And for them, every Arab and every Jew that don't think like them is potentially terror support. Some Arab students say they feel unwelcome at the university because of the war. To be honest, I feel very uncomfortable being in the university. 21-year-old Ibrahim is an Arab first-year law student at Haifa University. He has Palestinian friends in Gaza and feels passionately about the soaring civilian casualties there. But he's afraid to express himself or use his last name because he may be seen as an enemy. If I say that I'm against the genocide, I'm against the war in Gaza, if I say I'm against killing civilians in Gaza, I feel like that would classify me in their eyes as a terrorist. The concern and fear are also felt by teachers. Some Jewish students won't attend classes taught by professors they deem as not forcefully condemning the October 7th attack.
Some teachers have been threatened by students, including Ghanem. He says one threatened to punch him, another to deface his office. Ghanem had a security camera installed and worries about repercussions if he talks about the war or Arab-Jewish relations. I think that now I'm more sensitive and I'm limiting myself in certain expressions and this will harm my ability to teach my students. I want to feel more free, more confidence that I can say anything within certain limitation. Earlier this month, the university reversed its decision and reinstated the Arab students while the investigation is carried out. Student Union President Amar is angry with that decision. He's a reservist and takes time away from his studies to fight Hezbollah militants along Israel's northern border. I can tell you that in the last couple of weeks, I almost died for like three or four times, like actually close to death, okay? And I can't even imagine a situation which I sit in my class and next to me sit a person that want me to die. I, I can't do it. He don't deserve to learn here. As an army reservist, Omar carries a pistol tucked into his waistband. Other reservists on campus are required to carry their army-issued assault rifles. This worries Ibrahim, the Arab student. Like, in what university do students come with weapons, right? When I go to a hall, I think twice before saying anything because the one sitting next to me holds a gun. So how can I feel comfortable, right? The University of Haifa is expected to make a decision in the near future about the fate of its eight Arab students. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Haifa. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, how the emergence of tiny invasive ants is altering the behavior of elephants in Kenya and the diet of lions. You have these ecological chain reactions that affect a bunch of other species that have seemingly very little to do with that ant. Ant power coming up in about 15 minutes. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. And Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. Stocks were up on Wall Street today as news came that the economy is still growing. The Dow rose more than six-tenths of a percent. S&P closed higher for a sixth day. It was up more than a half percent. And the Nasdaq rose nearly two-tenths of a percent. A Boston-based private equity firm now owns Chapstick. 
Yellowwood Partners says it acquired the iconic brand from a British company for $510 million. The deal is expected to close by the end of June if regulators give their okay. Yellowwood also owns brands such as Suave Shampoo and Dr. Scholl's. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. Generally cloudy skies overnight tonight. Hopefully you'll be able to see the full moon for at least a little bit of time. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, a good chance of rain during the first part of the day. Clouds hang on as the rain dries out. Temperatures in the low 40s. 38 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 421. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From Workday, with AI at the core of its system, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Tonight, Alabama is set to execute someone using an untested method. It would be the first state to kill an inmate using what Alabama calls nitrogen hypoxia. Opponents say the method is experimental and cruel. Kenneth Smith was convicted and sentenced to death for his role in the murder-for-hire plot to kill Elizabeth Sennett. The victim was beaten and stabbed to death in 1988. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett has been covering the case and joins us from Montgomery. Hi there. Hey, Ari. Where do things stand now with this execution? Well, the execution was scheduled for 6 p.m. local time, but that's more like a guideline. And, Ari, it's likely to drag into the night, as there are still appeals happening right now to try to stop this execution. We know from our NPR producers on the ground that some protesters have arrived at the prison in Atmore, which is just north of Mobile, and that's where Alabama carries out its executions. Ari, there's also incredible international interest in the story. We know that the family of Kenneth Smith has been fielding calls from all around the world, and the U.N. has spoken out against this method of execution, so there's a lot of attention on this. Let's talk more about that method. This is relatively new. The state calls it nitrogen hypoxia. What is it? Well, Ari, this is the first time in the United States that an inmate, and Smith in this case, will have a mask strapped to his face and be administered pure nitrogen gas. Now, state officials say that 30 to 45 seconds later, he will become unconscious, and soon after they say he will die from oxygen starvation. And in court records, the state of Alabama maintains it will be a quick and painless death. But many people are concerned that it will be the opposite of quick and painless. What have people in Alabama been telling you? Well, you know, I was at a rally earlier this week on the steps of the Alabama Capitol, and a number of groups had gathered to protest this execution, which they're calling untested and experimental. They were ringing a bell, Ari, that was previously a gas canister, and they were praying. And while I was there, I spoke with Unitarian Universalist Reverend Lynn Hopkins, who echoed much of what I heard coming from those who spoke. Alabama has a lot of tragic, brutal moments in its history, but this one is exceptional in that the government is actively pursuing death above all reasonable objections in a method that obviously has not been tested. It is a lethal act. And Kyle, this is the second time Alabama is attempting to put Kenneth Smith to death. Um, And wasn't it he who asked for this method of execution? 
He did, Ari. In 2022, Smith's execution was the last of three botched or problematic lethal injections Alabama attempted to carry out. So I'm trying not to get executed again by lethal injection. Smith actually suggested nitrogen hypoxia, which had been approved by the legislature, and that's the term that they gave it. But at the time, there were no protocols. Late last year, the state issued a 41-page protocol, and so Smith's execution was set for today. But now Ari, his lawyers, argue that in trying to execute him again using this method, it's a violation of the constitutional amendment against cruel and unusual punishment. Well, with so many people around the country and the world watching this execution, what are the concerns about how it could unfold tonight? Well, so critics of this method say that there are a number of things that could go wrong, such as Smith vomiting into his mask or it slipping off when he attempts to pray out loud. They're also worried about other individuals near Smith, such as his spiritual advisor. If it doesn't work like they predict and it doesn't kill him, it may leave him in a vegetative state. And other states with the death penalty already are watching closely as they're all looking for alternatives to current death penalty methods. That is Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. Now to Capitol Hill, where bipartisan talks in the Senate on U.S.-Mexico border security are at risk of collapsing. Senate Majority... Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell indicated to fellow Republicans that it might not be possible to advance legislation if it is opposed by former President Trump. A potential border security deal is expected to carry with it long delayed aid for Ukraine. And that is also at risk because most Republicans say they will not support Ukraine aid without a border deal. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis is in the studio now for the latest. Hi, Sue. Hey, Juana. So, Sue, I mean, these negotiations have been going on for weeks and we're making progress by all accounts. And Mitch McConnell is no ally of Donald Trump. So help me understand what exactly has changed here. Donald Trump won the New Hampshire primary on Tuesday and even reluctant corners of the party are coalescing around him as their nominee. And it is shifting the calculus on Capitol Hill. McConnell met with Republicans behind closed doors yesterday and he acknowledged that the politics around this have changed. And he said, quote, we don't want to do anything to undermine him, him being Donald Trump. To be clear, McConnell wants a deal here, but he's pretty clear-eyed about the political realities. Um, Chris Murphy, he's a Democrat from Connecticut. He's been leading these talks with James Lankford, the Republican from Oklahoma. He was asked about McConnell's comments, and this morning he said Republicans are going to have to make a decision soon. I think the Republican conference is going to make a decision in the next 24 hours as to whether they actually want to get something done or whether they want to leave the border a mess for political reasons. Murphy and Langford say they're close to a deal. McConnell appeared to backtrack on those comments a little bit today, saying he supports the talks continuing. And remember, Juana, this entire negotiation was requested by Republicans who said they wouldn't support Ukraine aid without a border deal. And they're getting a lot of concessions here. So if they walk away, it could be seen as a purely political calculation. Sue, I've got a question for you about the politics of all of this. I mean, what exactly is the political incentive for Republicans here to not reach a deal, given we know how important border security and immigration issues are to the Republican base? You know, if Republicans help deliver a substantial border security bill win for President Biden, it would inoculate him from some of these political attacks. And the party would also take co-ownership of the problem at the border. Trump has been campaigning against Biden as weak on issues of national security and border security. And he does not want a House Republican majority to give Biden any substantial policy wins leading up to this election. You know, just last week on the True Social platform, Trump said Republicans should oppose any deal that doesn't meet every single Republican demand. And even if there's still a bipartisan deal to be had in the Senate, they need at least nine Republicans. It could be headed into a buzzsaw in the House. Speaker Mike Johnson has indicated he's not likely to bring something to the floor that Donald Trump opposes. And he said he speaks frequently with Trump on this very matter. 
Which leads me to a question here on the funding for Ukraine. If indeed there is no border deal, does that just mean Ukraine aid is completely off the table? You know, Langford said as much to reporters today. No border deal likely could mean no Ukraine money. Uh, caveat here is some, Repu- some Republican senators have indicated they could support Ukraine money if it was offset with spending cuts elsewhere. But $60 billion is an awful lot of money to offset. McConnell also really wants a Ukraine deal. He wants this money for Ukraine. He's been pushing for it for months. He says it's vital to U.S. national interests. There is likely bipartisan support for Ukraine aid in both chambers if they can reach a compromise. But this week is a good reminder that this is not Mitch McConnell's party anymore. NPR's Susan Davis. Sue, thank you. You're welcome. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, four years ago, after setbacks in Iowa and New Hampshire, Joe Biden needed to win South Carolina to secure his party's nomination, and the state delivered. One key to that success was black voters. But can he repeat his 2020 success this cycle as an incumbent with low approval ratings? The black community, the young communities are still saying, you're not listening to us. Listen to us to get our vote. That story tomorrow on Morning Edition. You can listen on the radio, on your phone, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, the death of a Kansas woman has renewed concerns about higher rates of domestic violence during pregnancy. That story is still ahead. Bruins and Celtics will both be in action tonight. The Bees hope to bounce back from a tough loss last night. They'll be up north to face the Ottawa Senators at 7 o'clock. And the Celtics are also on the road. They'll meet up with the Miami Heat in South Florida tonight. Tip-off is set for 7.30. Cooler weather overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Tomorrow should have rain in the morning. Cloudy in the afternoon, about 42 degrees for a high. The time is 4.30. I'm Scott Tong. In Oakland, the baseball A's are stealing away from home, moving to Vegas to join the former Oakland Raiders. Plus, the NBA Warriors have already left for fancy San Francisco. What you have are emblems of culture that were really very important here, being stolen away from these fans. That's here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The U.S. economy grew more than 3% in the final three months of last year, thanks in part to consumer spending. Today, the U.S. Treasury Secretary said the outlook for the economy moving forward is very favorable, with no signs of a recession. During remarks on the campaign trail in Wisconsin today, President Biden took the opportunity to highlight the latest numbers from the Wall Street Journal and other papers. U.S. shatters expectations. Second headline, the U.S. economy boomed in 2023. Third, U.S. economy grew at a shocking pace. (laughs) I love that shocking pace, (laughs) Pete. But my favorite is from the Wall Street Journal. Quote, what recession? Growth ended accelerating in 2023. Biden says his Republican rival, Donald Trump, was hoping the economy would not recover like it has. The mother of the Michigan school shooter is on trial during opening statements today. Prosecutors argued 
why Jennifer Crumbly should be found guilty of involuntary manslaughter, Quinn Kleinfelter of member station WDET reports on what happened in court. Prosecutors say Jennifer Crumbly and her husband ignored signs her son could become violent and instead bought him the gun he used to shoot four students to death at Oxford High. They say reasonable parents would have taken steps that could have stopped the massacre before it began. But defense attorney Shannon Smith argues school officials told Crumbly her son did not pose a danger to anyone and she did not realize how truly troubled he was until she saw him in custody after the shooting. For the first time when he looks at her, his eyes looked black and it was a son she did not recognize. Smith says Crumbly herself will testify in her own defense. For NPR News, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter in Detroit. On Wall Street, stocks finished higher today after data on the economy shows it growing faster than economists expected. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey's new budget proposal aims to keep the MBTA afloat, but at least one policy analyst says the spending would not allow the T to address some of its long-term problems. Here's WBUR's Rob Lane. Healey's plan would boost funding for the T's day-to-day operations, helping stave off a fiscal cliff. But Evan Horowitz of Tufts' Center for State Policy Analysis tells WBUR's Radio Boston the budget makes just gestures in the direction of addressing deeper capital needs. Of course it's not enough. The problems are huge, and the state is tight on money, so gestures are really all we've got right now. Healy is reckoning with six straight months of lower-than-expected tax collections that cast uncertainty on future revenue. A recent assessment by the MBTA found the agency needs close to $25 billion in the long term to bring its system to a state of good repair. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. Governor Healy says her administration is keeping watch on the financial problems at Steward Healthcare. The for-profit company says it's suffering losses that jeopardize its operations. Steward runs nine community hospitals in the state with more than 16,000 employees. Healy said today that she's focused on protecting patients and keeping the state's health care system stable. The Veterans Health Administration is notifying more than 22,000 veterans in New England that their personal information may have been shared with other patients. VA officials say the information includes appointment reminders. They say no Social Security numbers or other identifying information was mistakenly shared. The VA says the mix-up was caused by a printing error by a subcontractor last month. Boston Symphony Orchestra music director Andres Nelsons will be staying put for the foreseeable future. The symphony announced today that he signed what it calls a rolling evergreen contract. He was also named the head of conducting at Tanglewood, the orchestra's summer home in the Berkshires. He's currently in his 10th season as BSO conductor. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. Generally cloudy, windy tonight, not too chilly in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, good chance of rain during the first part of the day. Clouds hang in after the rain dries out. Temperatures in the 40s, staying in the low 40s for Saturday and Sunday, with clouds on Sunday, clouds and uh, on Saturday, that is, clouds and rain on Sunday. 38 degrees in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from BritBox with Archie, based on the true story of Hollywood icon Cary Grant a new original drama starring Jason Isaacs. Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. 
Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. It's time now for our regular Science News Roundup with our friends at NPR's shortwave podcast, Regina Barber and Ping Wong. Hey, y'all. Hey, Juana. Hey. So how this works is you've brought us three science stories that caught your attention this week. Tell us what they are. Yeah, so first off, we've got a story about how a bunch of tiny invasive ants have changed how elephants act and what lions eat. Then we have a sample of ancient chewing gum that tells us about dental care and diets in the Stone Age. And then, billions of cicadas are appearing this spring. Okay, there is a lot going on here. I kind of don't want to pick between them, but okay, (laughs) let's start with ants and lions. Okay, so this story starts in the savanna at a nature preserve in central Kenya. And Juana, if we went back 20 years, we would see grasslands that are covered with acacia trees. And these trees provide food and shelter for native ants. And in turn, the ants defended the trees against animals that would eat the trees, like elephants. Like when elephants would grab tree leaves, the native ants would swarm up inside their trunks and bite them. This does not sound fun. (laughs) No, no, not at all. And for a long time, the trees and the ants had this, like, mutualistic relationship. And then, about, like, 20 years ago, this new invasive ant showed up. It's called a big-headed ant, and it starts taking over the territory, killing the native ants, and leaving these trees undefended. Okay, I think I know how the story goes. Let me (laughs) guess here. The elephants are running rampant on these trees? Yeah, they are. They're not just eating the leaves. The elephants are pulling down the branches. They're knocking the trees over. And Douglas Kamaru, he's an ecologist at the University of Wyoming, and he says that these elephants have torn down so many acacia trees that they've transformed the landscape. Now we are seeing like these areas opening up from the dense we're talking about in terms of those acacias to more open landscape, like a grassland or something like that. And he says elephants have cleared 70 to 80 percent of the trees in the park. And this is all over the last 20 years. Okay, we mentioned that this story is also about lions, so help us fit that part of the animal kingdom in here. Yeah, right. So so for the lions at this park, their favorite food is zebra, and the lions usually catch the zebras by hiding behind trees, stalking them, and then boom, they pounce. And this open landscape, it means that they're losing the element of surprise. I mean, the zebras can now see them coming from across the field, and they get plenty of time to escape. So Kamaro and his team actually found that the lions were almost three times better at hunting zebra in that tree-covered area, like what the whole park used to be, than on the open grassland that's there now. And this took years of field work and observations and experiments to figure all this out. It's all detailed in the journal Science This Week. And one outside researcher who wasn't involved in the work told us that these connections in ecology can be really messy. But she was impressed with how well the study documented these links. Got a question for you. What does mm-hmm. this all mean for the lions? I mean, if they can't catch the zebras, are they starving? Well, it turns out that there's actually some evidence that they're switching their diets. So as the proportion of zebra in their diet goes down, the amount of buffalo has gone up. So that means that so far the lion population seems okay, like their numbers are stable, there's still places in the park with tree cover where they're having decent luck catching zebras. But these tiny invasive ants are still taking over the park at a rate of about 160 feet a year, and it's not clear if they can be stopped. All right, next up, I think you all have brought a story about something that does not sound particularly tasty to me, stone (laughs) age chewing gum? Yes, that's right. But Juana and Ping, I'm really curious, what's your opinion on gum? Like, do you love it? Do you hate it? 
I'm going to go with love it. I love bubble tape. I absolutely cannot stand it. Oh, no. I love gum. I have, like, packs all over my house and my car. But most relevant to the study, my teenager loves it, too. Okay, I live with teenagers, too. That sounds like something that could get very messy in a kid's room. But (laughs) please explain. What do teenage gum preferences have to do with the Stone Age? So it's because the study published in the journal Scientific Reports looks at what teenagers ate in Scandinavia about 10,000 years ago. And this is all by analyzing the ancient gum they chewed. Okay, what flavor of gum are we talking about here (laughs) 10,000 years ago? Well, I mean, gum was a different thing back then. You know, basically it was tar made from the bark of birch trees. And people in the Stone Age used to chew a wad of this and then maybe like stick some tools together with it. And as you chew gum in general, it collects stuff from your mouth, you know, genetic material, bacteria, little bits of food stuck in your teeth. And so this Stone Age wad of gum is something like a time capsule of what they were eating. Okay, I am going to need to hear about the menu in Stone Age Scandinavia. (laughs) Yeah, I was very interested. So I asked an archaeogeneticist at Sweden's Stockholm University about this, Anders Gatherstrom. Here's what he said people were snacking on in the Middle Stone Age or Mesolithic period. So what's a proper Stone Age diet? At least now we know that if you go home and then put hazelnuts, trouts, and deer in your frying pan, then you would have a Mesolithic diet from Scandinavia. And this gum also has like the imprints of teeth, which gives you the size of the teeth, which is also how they knew that the gum chewers were teenagers. And Gatherstrom and his team could tell from the mix of bacteria in the gum that one of the teens actually had very bad gum disease. We know that she was about to lose her teeth. Ouch. Although, I guess it's not super surprising that someone who lived almost 10,000 years ago needed some dental work. Yeah, um, Gatherstrom said that she probably was in a lot of pain while chewing that gum. And while that's very sad for her, there's this little silver lining for researchers in the fact that we can learn so much detail of the daily life of a Stone Age person from a small piece of gum. Interesting. All right, let's move on now to cicadas. And I should just point out that this topic is such a big deal in my household. My husband absolutely loves cicadas, but I'm going to let you guys explain. Yeah, so scientists have determined that this spring, two adjacent groups of cicadas will emerge at the same time all across the Midwest and the Atlantic states, meaning billions of cicadas, at least. Our colleague Claire Marie Schneider wrote about this, and one entomologist she talked to described it as a spectacular macabre Mardi Gras. Okay, so this sounds like my kind of party, but I should note that not everyone would probably love this. So tell us, (laughs) are these the kind of cicadas that come up every summer, or is this something more special? Okay, this is more special. I mean, there are annual cicadas, but these are more rare. So these two regional groups or broods of cicadas only emerge every 13 or 17 years. And the really exciting thing here is that the last time that these two specific broods, again, one on a 13-year cycle, the other on a 17-year cycle, the last time that they came up at the same time was in 1803. That is a long time ago. Okay, can one of y'all remind me how their life cycle works? Because 13 or 17 years, that is a long time to stay underground. It's a super long time, yeah. So periodical cicadas spend all of that time underground in this immature nymph form where they're sucking on the roots of shrubs and trees and feeding. And when that time comes, they emerge. They molt. The males have this like glorious cacophony of calls and songs, which can actually be louder than a jet engine. 
And then the cicadas mate, the females lay their eggs in trees. And the cycle starts all over again, like when the eggs drop from the tree and return to the ground for another 13 or 17 years. So tell me, when exactly does the cicada Mardi Gras kick off? So one brood will start appearing in late April, mostly in the south, and the other will appear in mid-May around Illinois, Wisconsin, Indiana, and Michigan. All right, guys, I am setting myself a reminder to book a plane ticket back to the Midwest <laughs> for that. Awesome. That is Regina Barber and Ping Huang from NPR science podcast Shortwave, where you can learn about new discoveries, everyday mysteries, and the science behind the headlines. Thanks to both of you. Thank you, Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A Kansas woman's death last summer is highlighting the elevated risk of domestic violence during pregnancy. Domestic violence shelters across the country are also reporting increased demand as pandemic aid is ending. Rose Conlin of member station KMUW reports. Dawn Wilson says she thought her husband might stop abusing her when she got pregnant. It was like, oh, now that I'm pregnant, things will get better. But no, it seemed like it got worse. For years, she kept it a secret. She was living on a military base, and she was embarrassed. They were having a child together, and she wasn't planning on leaving. The only people that really knew was those that were stationed with me at the time and saw the abuse firsthand, saw the military police reports, you know, being six months pregnant and being drugged down a hallway. They eventually divorced, but the emotions came rushing back in August when her goddaughter, Zayla Bronson, died from apparent domestic violence. Prosecutors say her boyfriend strangled her. She was 16 weeks pregnant. She was having a boy, and that was going to be her new world. The 19-year-old had moved to Wichita for college. Wilson says her goddaughter loved children. She wanted to be a math teacher. Just that compassionate, that smile, that happy, that vibrant, that sunshine. Their ray of sunshine, Zayla. Bronson's death is forcing a public reckoning with domestic violence as a leading cause of maternal mortality. Michelle McCormick, who directs the Kansas Coalition Against Sexual and Domestic Violence, says sometimes abusers feel threatened by their partner's pregnancy. They have an expectation that they're not only in control, but that their needs come first. When you think about the dynamics of pregnancy, of course that shifts while being pregnant can make it more likely for someone to be killed by an intimate partner, Tulane epidemiologist Maeve Wallace says Black moms, teenagers, and those living in homes with guns are most at risk. And her research found a sharp increase in pregnancy-associated homicides during the pandemic. A lot of that has to do with a worsening of the conditions that we know to be root causes of violence. Economic turmoil, unemployment, income inequality, food insecurity. The CDC estimates one in four women and one in 10 men have experienced severe physical violence from an intimate partner. Some data shows violence worsened during the pandemic. Kansas shelters say this year has been particularly intense. So this is our playroom back here. This is also the shelter entrance. The Wichita Family Crisis Center tripled its capacity, but Executive Director Amanda Myers says it's still not enough. We are full of women who have just had babies. Come in pregnant and go and have a baby and come back to our shelter. It's a very dangerous time. And the threat of more serious physical harm seems to be higher when the person is pregnant. 
The rising demand comes as shelter directors across the country say they're facing a fiscal cliff. Cuts to regular federal funding, plus the end of pandemic aid. Kansas and many other states have added extra money to help bridge the gap, but shelters remain stretched thin. Myers wants to see more energy go toward longer-term violence prevention strategies. That could look like putting more resources into expanding access to mental health care or youth outreach programs to intervene in generational cycles of violence. Experts say it's also important for healthcare providers to screen pregnant and postpartum women for intimate partner violence during medical visits and help connect victims with resources. For NPR News, I'm Rose Conlin in Wichita. And the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 800-799-7233. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. In the forecast, if the clouds pull apart for a while tonight, we should get a shot at seeing the full wolf moon. It'll be right overhead about midnight tonight. Tomorrow could start up with showers and then clouds hang in through the day. Should only make it to the low 40s. Saturday and Sunday could be pretty much the same thing. Cloudy on Saturday, Sunday some rain in the afternoon, still holding to the low 40s. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson, with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. And Leslie University. Put your creativity to work with a fine arts degree from Leslie University. Invest in your passion at leslie.edu. WBUR has invested in building a relationship with us over decades. I think about this as a way to repay that. If we're able to make a difference with our giving that lives beyond us is something that's deeply satisfying to consider. John and Margot Davis are leaving a legacy to WBUR to ensure a strong future. You can too at WBUR.org legacy. The annual Hasty Pudding Woman of the Year celebration is being postponed. It was scheduled for tomorrow in Harvard Square, Cambridge, but the pudding tells the Boston Globe that the roast and parade will be delayed because of unforeseen conflicts with the honorees' schedule. The Woman of the Year and Man of the Year honorees have not been publicly named yet. The Man of the Year ceremony is still planned for next Friday, February 2nd. This is 90.9 WBUR. Again, in the forecast, looks like we should have temperatures in the mid-30s tonight. More clouds tomorrow, some rain, especially in the morning, about 42 for a high. 41 degrees in Boston at 450. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Louisiana has a new congressional map that boosts the political power of black voters. The map is the result of a long-running legal fight that could now be over, and the new districts could provide a new seat for Democrats in Congress. Molly Ryan is state politics reporter at WRKF in Baton Rouge. Hi there. Hi. Start with the why. Why does Louisiana have this new map? Well, A couple of months ago, a federal court actually gave Louisiana a January deadline to redraw its congressional map to comply with the Federal Voting Rights Act. The court had found that the old map likely diluted black voting power. So when Republican Governor Jeff Landry stepped into office earlier this month on his first day in office, he called a special session to focus on redrawing Louisiana's congressional map. And at the start of that session, Landry, who as attorney general really tried to defend the state's old map, 
urged lawmakers to go ahead and draw a new map with two majority black districts. Here's part of what he had to say at the start of the session. These maps will satisfy the court and ensure that the congressional districts of our state are made right here in this legislature and not by some heavy handed federal judge. So Landry and lawmakers were very much feeling that this was their last opportunity to draw the map themselves before a judge did it for them. And they wanted to have control over it, so they passed a new map and Landry signed it on Monday. Now, a judge still has to give the map a stamp of approval, but the map does seem likely to stick. Tell us more the specifics of what's changed with these new districts. So Louisiana has six congressional districts, And for a while, only one of those districts had a majority black population, even though black residents make up about a third of the state's total population. And so the new map added a second majority black district. District 2, which is mainly the New Orleans area, has been Louisiana's only majority black district for several years. And now there's another, District 6, and that district changed from about a quarter black population to now over half. It runs from Shreveport to Baton Rouge, and it's currently represented by Republican Congressman Garrett Graves. So Graves is at risk of losing his seat under this new map. How have people in Louisiana reacted to the new map? Well, from Graves, of course, there's been a lot of pushback because the new map does jeopardize his seat in Congress. And already Graves is seeing Democratic challengers come forward saying that they're going to run for Congress under the new district. And Republicans clearly wanted to protect some other members of their delegation, like House Speaker Mike Johnson, by passing this map. It wasn't the map that black voters preferred, but this new one has still been met with a lot of excitement from them. Put this into context for us. We keep seeing these fights over districting. That's right. I mean, Louisiana's redistricting battle is just one of several across the country. It really echoes this fight in Alabama that we saw earlier this year, where they also ended up with a map with two majority black districts. And so again, under this new map in Louisiana, Democrats could gain a new seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. And that's significant because Republicans hold only a thin majority in the House right now. So it could substantially shift the balance of power there. That's Molly Ryan, state politics reporter at WRKF in Baton Rouge. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The team over at Planet Money recently tried out a new idea. What if they made a version of their economics podcast, but for kids, and tried to explain complicated economic terms to them? Erica Barris kicked off this experiment with the idea of labor hoarding. You're listening to Planet Money is for the kids from NPR. To help me explain what labor hoarding is to kids, I thought it might be helpful to enlist the help of a kid a third grader named Paul. I'm eight years old. I like to watch TV, go outside, catch snakes. And do you like economics? Well, no, not really. So the first thing we're going to talk about is something called labor hoarding. I know what hoarding means. Um, it's like taking a bunch of stuff and like keeping it and I kind of know what labor means. Labor 
is work. And to help me explain labor hoarding, I called up Julia Pollack. She is the chief economist at ZipRecruiter, a website that helps people find work. Labor hoarding is when an employer tries to hang on to all of their employees because they value them a lot. People usually value things when they're difficult to get. And in the past few years, it's actually been very difficult to find people to work in your ice cream store or to work in your school. Or at your toy factory. Imagine you run a very busy toy factory, but then there's an economic downturn. Wah, wah. And people aren't buying as many toys. If the factory doesn't need to make as many toys, it doesn't need as many workers. So you could just let those workers go, or you could decide to hoard those jobs, hoard those workers. What choice would you make? I would keep the workers I had because Whenever things got better, there would still be people who would want to buy stuff. And if you got rid of the workers you had, then you'd have to, like, go find new people that knew how to make those things. Which would be hard. There, there might not be a lot of people who know how to make toys very well. And I don't know if there are, but there might not be a lot of people who know how to make toys good. Bingo! Last year was one of the best years for people having jobs ever. Julia says if some workers tried to leave jobs, employers offered them more money to stay. And there are hints of labor hoarding in jobs where things are slow right now, like with some financial services companies. A lot of them still have the same number of workers as they did when they were doing 10 times as much business. So the economy is good, even though we've been dealing with inflation. Well, I don't like inflation. Inflation is like the prices of things going up. Right. Inflation is the rate at which the price of goods and services in the economy increase. And disinflation is when that speed is getting slower. There is some anecdotal evidence that employers are hoarding workers. And they're competing, competing, competing and paying more and more and more. That can lead to inflation and delay disinflation. So... All this supposed labor hoarding may be a reason inflation won't come down as fast as people would like. Are you into economics? Um, a little bit now. Cool. Erica Barris, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. 
From Cunard, sailing to over 250 destinations with Queen Mary II, Queen Victoria, Queen Elizabeth, and Queen Anne. Each voyage is dedicated to a world of fine dining and entertainment. Cunard.com From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. And the station is 90.9 WBUR. Cooler weather is working its way back into the region. Should be cloudy tonight. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Should have rain tomorrow morning. Then it should taper off in the afternoon, about 42 degrees for a high. The weekend is looking generally cloudy with temperatures stuck in the low 40s. Tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock, Governor Maura Healey will join us live. All roads in Massachusetts go through her new proposed state budget, including the migrant crisis and the national election. Listen live tomorrow here at 11 o'clock right here on the radio or on the WBUR app. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 4.59. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR. Boston's NPR news station. More signs of strength in the U.S. economy today, but the new year has also brought a surge of job cutbacks in the tech industry. The biggest driver of the recent tech layoffs is still companies trying to correct for their overhiring during the pandemic surge. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also, the push for electric vehicles has led to a growing demand for lithium and cobalt. Mining for these minerals, though, can harm the environment. Air pollution, water pollution, noise pollution, loss of biodiversity, loss of water. Many mining projects are located on or near indigenous people's lands. And the U.S. military is being drawn into dangerous flashpoints in the Middle East since Hamas invaded Israel and the two sides went to war. The conflagration now involves Iran and Iraq, which wants to expel U.S. forces. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. There's been more fighting in the West Bank city of Jenin. As NPR's Jeff Bromfield reports, it was the latest in a series of raids by Israeli forces in the area. Videos posted to social media showed Israeli bulldozers moving through the streets of Jenin amid the sounds of gunfire. Mohammed Saeed is a local activist. He says Israeli forces were operating in both the city and a nearby refugee camp. They bulldozed the roads in the refugee camp and destroyed two squares in the city, he said. In a statement, the Israeli military said a joint operation with the domestic intelligence service and border police had made 16 arrests. According to the statement, one additional suspect was killed after firing on Israeli forces. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The Senate is gearing up to vote next week on whether to issue subpoenas for the CEOs of two major pharmaceutical companies. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Democrats are demanding testimony from the execs of Johnson & Johnson and Merck after they refused an invitation to appear before the Senate Help Committee. Senator Bernie Sanders says the committee wants to know why the drug companies charge substantially higher prices for certain medications in the U.S. compared to other countries. Sometimes 10 times higher for the same exact drug sold in Canada or in Europe, Mexico, as in the United States. 
These are pretty simple and straightforward questions. Sanders noted that Johnson & Johnson and Merck manufacture some of the most expensive drugs sold in the nation. For example, Sanders says Merck sells Genuvia, a medication for diabetes, for nearly $7,000 in the U.S., compared to $900 in Canada and $200 in France. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Another former Trump White House official is being convicted on contempt of Congress charges for refusing to cooperate with an investigation into the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. One time Trump trade advisor Peter Navarro sentenced to four months in prison after being found guilty of two misdemeanor counts of criminal contempt last September. The U.S. economy grew at a faster-than-expected pace in the final months of 2023. NPR's Scott Horsley has more on the latest numbers from the Commerce Department. The U.S. economy grew at an annual pace of 3.3 percent in October, November, and December, led by strong consumer spending on both goods and services. Growth was also fueled by business investment, government spending, new home construction, and exports. Although fourth quarter growth was somewhat slower than the previous quarter, it was substantially faster than most analysts had predicted. The economy continues to outperform expectations even in the face of higher interest rates. Core measures of inflation show price increases continuing to ease. GDP was 3.1 percent larger at the end of last year than it was 12 months earlier. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow was up 242 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Democrats in the state Senate say they will try to get a vote a week from today on a gun law reform bill. Supporters said this afternoon that the plan would cut down on untraceable guns and expanding the existing red flag law. They say it would also give local agencies that administer gun licenses access to some of the applicants' mental health hospitalization history, and it would ban carrying guns in government buildings. State Senator Cynthia Cream says the bill was created with input from several groups, including gun owners. We sought input from school administrators, community-based violence intervention and prevention programs, and organizations representing our health care and mental health providers. The bill also has the support of the Massachusetts Chiefs of Police Association. The MBTA is proposing a new low-income fare program. It would cut fares roughly in half on all MBTA modes, including the commuter rail for low-income riders. The T estimates more than 60,000 commuters would qualify for the program. The agency says it will gather public input on the proposal through the end of next month. If it's approved, the new fare schedule would go into effect as early as this spring. Some grieving parents who've become leaders in the drug overdose crisis are calling on lawmakers to allow overdose prevention sites in the state. The sites are where illegal drug use is monitored so staff can intervene if needed to reverse an overdose. The parents are angry that lawmakers have not acted on legislation they say might have saved their children. Kara Mosier from Northampton lost her daughter Eliza five years ago. Now it's time for Massachusetts to get on board and save our families and friends from more unnecessary overdose deaths. Last month, the Department of Public Health published a report that recommended opening overdose prevention sites. House and Senate leaders say they are reviewing the report. The first North Atlantic right whales of the season have been spotted on Cape Cod Bay. The Center for Coastal Studies spotted four right whales yesterday, but suspect there are more. Researchers at the center say this is about the time of year the animals return to Cape Cod Bay to feed on plankton. The whales that were spotted were feeding both on and below the surface. Estimates are that there are only about 350 of the whales left in the world. In the forecast, 41 degrees now. Look for cloudy skies overnight tonight. 
Should have showers early tomorrow morning, then clouds hang out for the day. Temperatures in the low 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 5.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Beyond the Israel-Hamas war, conflict in the Middle East is expanding. That includes in Iraq. U.S. forces there have been attacked by Iran-backed militias. And the Iraqi government is under political pressure to expel the U.S. military. What does this mean for troops in the region? Well, we are joined by NPR's Jane Araf in Amman, Jordan, and NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman here in the studio. Good to have you both here. Hey, Ari. Hi, Ari. Jane, let's start with you. The U.S. has 900 troops in Syria and 2,500 in Iraq. Why is Iraq's prime minister saying that he plans to end the U.S. presence in the country? If it were up to the prime minister, it's likely he wouldn't. He and Iraqi military leaders have made clear that they still value U.S. forces with help in fighting ISIS. And with extremely useful U.S. tools and assets like air support and signal intelligence gathering and analysis. But it's looking as if he won't be able to hold off political pressure. That's after a series of U.S. airstrikes, retaliation for attacks on U.S. bases. That retaliation was against Iran-backed militias that are actually part of Iraq's official security forces. Prime Minister Mohammad Shia Sudani came to power because Iran and the militias it supports supported him. So in between anger over the U.S. role in supplying weapons for the war in Gaza to Israel and anger over U.S. breaches of Iraqi sovereignty, it's looking as if he won't have much choice. Tom, can you explain what 2,500 U.S. troops are doing in Iraq? I was actually surprised at how large that number is. Well, Ari, first a little background. U.S. troops left Iraq in 2011, returned in 2014, first fighting ISIS with Iraqi forces. And now they're not in combat, but assisting Iraqis in going after the remnants of ISIS. Now, many of the U.S. troops are stationed in northern Iraq and Erbil, and those troops also support the anti-ISIS fight next door in Syria. The U.S. also provides hundreds of millions of dollars to Iraq in aid, uh, government development, humanitarian assistance, demining efforts, and military sales. Get this, more than $16 billion, everything mm. from F-16 aircraft to helicopters and radar, uh, small arms. In addition, the U.S. Uh, has provided Iraq with excess defense equipment over the recent years, 300 large armored vehicles, Humvees, helicopters, body armor all of which contributed to the ISIS fight. So really massive amounts of aid and sales. Which could be on its way out. Jane, what is the timeline here? Iraq's prime minister pledged to set up a committee to begin the process of the U.S. pullout. When and how is this likely to happen? An advisor to the Iraqi prime minister said today the aim is to come up with what he called a specific and clear timetable for the gradual reduction of the U.S.-led coalition troops in Iraq and to an end to the U.S.-led anti-ISIS mission. The government spokesman, Bassem al-Awadi, told Iraqi state TV viewers that Sudani had repeatedly made clear that Iraq's stability required ending the U.S. military presence in Iraq. Let's listen. He literally said that ending the mission of the international coalition in Iraq is necessary for Iraq. He used the term necessity, a 
And I assure you that when the prime minister uses a term, he means it. And if there's any doubt, that segment was called Ending the Coalition Mission in Iraq. As Tom mentioned, the U.S. military pulled out almost completely and then came back at the invitation of the Iraqi government to help fight ISIS. But that invitation can essentially be withdrawn whenever Iraq wants. But practically speaking, there are lots of details to iron out, and the process is expected to take months. Now, Iraqi officials say we want the U.S. forces to leave. That's what these talks were about. That's not how the U.S. sees it, Ari. We just had a background call today with senior Pentagon and State Department officials. They said the talks are not about a withdrawal of U.S. troops. They said it's about shaping the future of the U.S. military presence. That presence will be determined, they say, by the strength of ISIS, the capability of Iraqi forces. So it seems like we have a disconnect here. This obviously comes in the context of the Israel-Hamas war and fears of a growing regional conflict involving Lebanon, Yemen, and more. Tom, where's the biggest threat to U.S. forces in the region right now, and is the danger getting worse? Clearly, the biggest threat to U.S. forces is right in Iraq with these militia groups. Again, 2,500 troops and Iraqi bases that are increasingly under more threat since the Israeli-Hamas war. More than 140 attacks by Iranian-backed militia groups in both Iraq and Syria. Now, just recently, we've seen some U.S. troops wounded three at that base in northern Iraq at Erbil, one seriously wounded with a head injury and sent back to the U.S. And just this week, there was one militia attack with missiles and rockets at Al-Assad Air Base west of Baghdad, two U.S. service members slightly wounded with concussions. The U.S., of course, responded with strikes on militia facilities in Baghdad and western Iraq. So we've seen these attacks ramp up. The U.S. responds with airstrikes, and all this, Ari, will likely get worse. And that, of course, will put more pressure on the Iraqi government on this issue of U.S. troop presence. Beyond the the government, the militias, the troops, Jane, how do typical Iraqi civilians feel about the U.S. presence? Do they want the Americans to leave? You know, Ari, Iraqis are facing so many problems rampant corruption, government dysfunction. For most Iraqis, the U.S. presence isn't really something they think about a lot. The soldiers are mostly on their bases, and most young Iraqis have never even seen a U.S. soldier. So particularly after the defeat of ISIS, it's pretty much a political issue and pretty much an Iranian one. But having said that, the killing of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani in a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad four years ago was a game changer. Iraqis do not appreciate other countries killing people on their soil. And then we can't separate the war in Gaza. Iraq doesn't recognize the state of Israel, and there's a lot of solidarity there for the Palestinians, as well as anger with the U.S. government and the military over arming Israel. And Tom, what are you hearing from Pentagon officials? Are military leaders nervous about Iraqis saying they want the U.S. to leave? Well, no one appears to be nervous yet, Ari. U.S. officials keep saying the Iraqi government wants the U.S. troops to stay to focus on ISIS, despite the outrage from the Iraqis about the airstrikes. And also, again, there's that substantial military relationship, both providing arms, selling arms. But again, if the attacks on U.S. forces continue and the U.S. responds with more and more airstrikes, that political headache for the Iraqi government will only get worse with more calls for all U.S. forces to leave. That's NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman and NPR's Jane Araf in Jordan. Thank you both. You're welcome. Thank you. 
Microsoft said today it is laying off 1,900 employees. It joins dozens of other tech companies, including Google, Amazon, TikTok, and Meta, in slashing tech jobs. It's the latest sign that Silicon Valley is still trying to adjust from the boom times of the pandemic. NPR's Bobby Allen reports. It's been a punishing year for the tech industry, and we're only four weeks in. So far in 2024, over 75 tech companies have laid off over 21,000 employees. That's Roger Lee. He's a San Francisco-based tech worker who runs Layoffs.FYI, which tracks layoffs in the tech sector. The tech industry has been shedding jobs for years now. Last year marked one of the worst in recent memory, with some 260,000 techies losing their jobs. This year isn't expected to be anywhere near that total, but the layoffs haven't stopped. The way executives are defending the continuation of job cuts may sound familiar. And no, it's not AI. The biggest driver of the recent tech layoffs we've been seeing is still companies trying to correct for their overhiring during the pandemic surge, given that the high interest rate environment and tech downturn have both lasted longer than initially expected. Lee estimates that just about 20% of the job losses in tech have been explained away by artificial intelligence, with tech companies trimming and reshuffling staff and investing more in automation. The big focus is on generative AI, which is the next gold rush in Silicon Valley. And while the economy is improving, sticky inflation and still historically high interest rates are dampening the outlook. But do tech companies have to lay off workers or do they want to? Lee says for some small tech startups that are running out of money, yeah, they might be forced to. But big tech companies, no. They are very profitable and have been driving the stock market higher. And those profits would be strong with or without this latest round of layoffs. You're seeing that these tech companies are almost being rewarded by Wall Street for their cost discipline. And that might be encouraging those companies and other companies in tech to cut costs and lay off staff. In other words, there is something contagious about tech layoffs. And if sacking tech workers lowers expenses and improves profit margins even slightly, investors looking to make money from the tech world are sure to be happy. Bobby Allen, NPR News. Lately, it's been freezing in places that don't normally freeze. It's probably about 22 degrees out right now. Got down Including to the Swamp Park in Ocean Isle Beach, North freezing. Carolina, home to several rescue alligators. This is a video shot by general manager George Howard. The pond where the alligators live froze, and the alligators, well, they did too, kind of. They are in full brumation right now. Brumation. Think of it like hibernating, but for reptiles. And in the video, you can see the alligators suspended in the frozen pond with everything under ice except the tip of their snouts. Just the nostrils. So they can breathe. A really fantastic way for them to be able to survive. And it didn't just happen in North Carolina. Eddie Hanhart shot a video of the same phenomenon at Gator Country Adventure Park in Beaumont, Texas last week. Alligators seemingly stuck in ice. He is not dead. He is fully alive. He has his heart rate down to three beats per minute right now. Three beats per minute, but don't worry, it's just temporary. And whenever it gets to that ice will thaw out, he'll get up on the bank, start soaking in all those nice hot sun rays and be able to warm up. The Swamp Park in North Carolina posted a photo just yesterday of their alligators fully thawed out and out of brumation.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday afternoon. The U.S. economy grew at an annual rate of 3.3 percent from last October to December. That's stronger than expectations and reinforces hopes about a healthy economy this year. We're following the money today at 90.9 WBUR. Also coming up, how a pineapple became a symbol of Taiwan-China tensions. Stocks were up on Wall Street today as news came the economy is still growing. The Dow rose more than six-tenths of a percent. S&P closed higher for a sixth day. It was up more than half percent, and the Nasdaq rose nearly two-tenths of a percent. The president of Brigham and Women's Hospital is stepping down after two years on the job. Dr. Robert Higgins is leaving for a post in Chicago. The hospital says the head of its physician's organization, Dr. Giles Boland, will serve as interim leader. The program at Brigham, or Brigham, we should say, is the second largest hospital in the state. The CEOs of pharmaceutical giants Johnson & Johnson and Merck did not show up for a hearing on Capitol Hill today over the cost of their drugs. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Ed Markey said he had questions about why the cost for some drugs in the U.S. is much lower in other countries. Diabetes drugs cost $6,000 in the U.S., yet only $900 in Canada. Cancer drugs in the United States are four times the cost of the same exact drugs in the United Kingdom. The chair of the committee holding the hearings, Bernie Sanders, says that Bristol-Myers Squibb has agreed to testify. In 2022, Johnson & Johnson made nearly $18 billion in profit. The CEO of Merck made $52 million in compensation. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Add Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. If the clouds pull apart for long enough tonight, we should get a shot at seeing the full wolf moon. It'll be right overhead around midnight. Tomorrow, starting up the day with showers, then clouds through the day. Should only make it to the low 40s. Saturday and Sunday could be pretty much the same. Cloudy on Saturday. Sunday, some rain in the afternoon, still holding both days to the low 40s. This is WBUR. It's 521. Support for NPR comes from this station and from National Pork Board, representing America's pig farmers. Information about the pork industry's commitments to bring sustainable pork products to family tables nationwide is at porkcares.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive nerve relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. We're two election days into 2024, and President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump are already looking ahead to the general election. Still, even after losses in Iowa and New Hampshire, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley is not backing down. Here's what she had to say last night. We are not going to sit there and just give up. We're going to sit there and we're going to fight because Americans deserve better than what they have in these two options. And we're going to give it to them. We're going to take stock now of where this 2024 race is and where it's headed. I'm joined now by Antoine Seawright, a Democratic strategist in South Carolina. And we're also joined by Republican strategist Ron Bonjean in Washington, D.C. Hello to both of you. Thanks very much. 
Antoine, I want to start this off with you because Democrats will kick off their primary process next weekend in your state of South Carolina. And as you and many recall, this is the state that breathed life into former the then Vice President Biden's 2020 campaign, former Vice President Biden's 2020 campaign. And this race this time around, it's virtually uncontested. Biden is all but certain to win. But given all of that, just how energized are South Carolina Democrats and how much does a strong showing there matter for President Biden? Well, in politics, a win is a win. and But I think in particular, a win in South Carolina among the most loyal and dedicated voting bloc in the generation. Black voters should send a message to the rest of the country. 60% of the people who cast their vote in the South Carolina primary are African-American. I think that is very reflective of the terrain to come after South Carolina. Uh, and black voters have shown consistently they are the deciding factor in whether or not Democrats lose or win in any given election. So I think a strong showing with, with, for President Biden, with African-American voters in particular, will send a strong message to the pollsters and those in the chattering class who seem to think there's some disconnect between Joe Biden and black voters. Well, Antoine, I want to push you on that because there have been, as you've alluded to, some recent national polls that have cast doubt on Biden's standing among black voters compared to what we saw in your state of South Carolina and elsewhere in 2020. From what you have seen and heard, is his campaign's message breaking through with black voters there, or do you think there's more they could or should be doing? Well, I think the biggest room in any house is the room for improvement. We have more work to do. Uh, we have to meet folks where they are. We have to push back against misinformation and disinformation. We have to remind folks not only what the president has done and the vice president, but also what they will do if they are allowed a second opportunity to serve again. But also we have to remind folks what we're up against and the Trumpism and the extremism that have now hijacked the Republican Party. And there's one thing about black voters I think the chattering class has to understand is we've always shown up historically to reject something or we've always shown up for a cause. Right. I think Joe Biden is a cause and something that we are worth fighting for and the work he's done for us, I think, speaks for itself. Ron, over to you. There's still some time, a matter of weeks, before the Republican primary in South Carolina. It's at the end of next month. But Nikki Haley, former governor, is relying heavily on her home state. Do you see any opportunity for her to land a similar surprise and win there? There can always be a surprise, of course, but the trend has been going in President Trump, former President Trump's direction, locking down Iowa and New Hampshire. And he has created this momentum because he's winning. And because he's winning, a number of high-profile endorsements have started to happen from elected officials, both in South Carolina and nationally. So Nikki Haley has an uphill climb to go, even in her home state. And it's likely that Trump is going to win there as well and secure the nomination. That is, we're seeing that in the wins and we're seeing that in the polling. And Ron, as I've been listening to Nikki Haley, who's been campaigning aggressively, she's definitely making the case to voters that she is the better candidate in terms of helping out down ballot with House and Senate races, state legislative races. And I'm wondering what you make of that. Is that too little too late or is Trump the better bet down the ballot? Well, Nikki Haley's making a smart argument. However, it's an argument that falls largely on deaf ears of Republican voters, especially the MAGA voters who are solidly in Trump's camp and Republicans that are looking for people, to, uh, elected officials to solve their problems at home. They're not thinking about that type of dynamic. That's a very high intellectual campaign argument to make. What I do think it's smart is that she's 
I think it's this is smart for her to be campaigning right now because she's setting herself up in four years. If she doesn't win, it's going to be natural for all of us to look to who is the next Republican who could succeed Donald Trump, and she'll be on that list. Antoine, uh, President Biden had a big rally on Tuesday focused on the issue of abortion rights, which is an issue that his campaign believes will drive Democrats to the polls. But that event was overshadowed by a series of interruptions from protesters about his support for Israel and its war in Gaza. There is a clear divide among Democratic voters on this. How big of an issue do you think it is for the president and his campaign? Look, I think the one thing this president does is he's welcomed free free speech, uh, and he welcomes the diversity of thought, uh, and he welcomes those who disagree with him um, to the to the table. And I think Joe Biden, more than any president in my party's history, catches more hell for that than anyone else. Uh, however, I would say to those protesters, and I think the president will probably say to them too, is that think about the disagreements what we may have, and I assure you they do not compare to the disagreements we have with the other side. Uh, and so we respect we, we respect diversity. We pride ourselves on that as Democrats, the big tent party, and I think those folks have the right to protest. But just know that if the other side gets their way, with all due respect, they will not have any seat or any ability to be able to have their voices heard on this issue. And guess what? It's okay to disagree. Um, but just know that our disagreements we have amongst each other do not compare to disagreements with the other side. Ron, I want to turn now to former President Trump, who is facing four criminal cases, one of them involving election interference. He may be on trial throughout this election year. While it is historic, he is the first president to be indicted on criminal charges. It does not seem to be dampening enthusiasm from voters. You'd hoped and said that you hoped you'd have a tougher run for the nomination. But what do you think now? Well, I, it, it sure looks like he's using it as a campaign slogan. He's turned this to his benefit, that he's being pure persecuted by the legal system, and the legal system is rigged by politicians. And there are lots of people out there that it's resonating with. And so normally it would hurt anyone else. It would devastate anyone else. In this case, because Donald Trump is the Teflon Don, so to speak, as we've said, um, mm -hmm. it's, it's not really having much of an effect. Now, what really matters is when it comes down to November, what are those independent voters in those swing states thinking? What are those slivers, those slices of the population that really decide these elections? Do they still want to be with Joe Biden or have they had enough and want to give Donald Trump a chance? Because while they don't like maybe like his tweets and like his rhetoric, they like the way the country was um, before COVID. And Ron, I want to stay with you here and just ask you in a ma in a sentence or two, what do you think Republicans need to focus on to beat President Biden? Quick answer. Well, I think they need to keep, still talk about the economy, crime, immigration, um, the issues that are on the forefronts of Americans okay. right now. They should not be getting involved right. in, in a lot of other things. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Republican strategist Ron Bonjean and Democratic strategist Antoine Seawright, thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with Trouble in Mind, Alice Childress's moving backstage look at identity and stereotypes of 1950s Broadway, lyricstage.com. And the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston's historic Back Bay near universities, high-tech, and the city's cultural life, elliotthotel.com. 
I'm Scott Tong. In Oakland, the baseball A's are stealing away from home, moving to Vegas to join the former Oakland Raiders. Plus, the NBA Warriors have already left for fancy San Francisco. What you have are emblems of culture that were really very important here, being stolen away from these fans. That's here and now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. More concerns in the Middle East. The International Committee of the Red Cross says the only hospitals left in Gaza to offer advanced surgical procedures to treat the wounded are at risk of closure. NPR's Aya Batrawi has more. The ICRC warns if these two hospitals cease to function, the world will, quote, bear witness to untold thousands of preventable deaths in Gaza, where most hospitals have shut down. Already, the Gaza Health Ministry says one of those two hospitals, the Nasser Medical Complex, has run out of food and anesthesia. Thousands remain trapped inside with ambulances unable to reach the hospital as Israeli forces battle Hamas in the area. The head of ICRC in Gaza, William Schoenberg, posted this video statement. The conditions are extremely challenging and hospitals across Gaza have been sites of violence in recent weeks. The ICRC says, according to international law, all parties to the conflict must protect medical facilities and allow safe access to hospitals. Aya Batrawi, NPR News. An opinion piece demanding additional political action on gun violence ran in more than 40 university papers this week. As NPR's Elena Moore tells us, the move was organized by the youth-run group March for Our Lives. The article was written by students who are part of the group's chapter at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. It comes nearly five months after a mass shooting on campus that left a professor dead. The piece, which was titled, We Will Not Wait for the Next School Shooting, pleads for politicians to work with young organizers on this issue. And the Biden administration has taken steps here, announcing new executive actions aimed at increasing the safe storage of firearms. But this is still a top of mind issue for many young voters. The article is signed by over 140 student leaders across the country. Elena Moore, NPR News. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street. The Dow gained 242 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. MBTA officials say Governor Moore Healy's proposed budget will double the state's operating support for the T to $254 million. It will also boost funding for a long-awaited low-income fare program. WBUR's Anindor and Wameka reports. The state wants to put $45 million into the new fare program, which will give qualifying riders a 50% discount on the T. Stephen Povich, the MBTA's director of fare policy, says the program will apply to all modes of travel, including commuter rail and the T's paratransit service, the ride. We believe there's around 62,000 riders in the service area who could enroll in this program, inducing about 8 million incremental trips on our fixed route system. In addition, on paratransit, we think that the majority of our riders uh, will qualify for the program in some form or fashion, inducing about 185,000 incremental trips. Povich says the full cost of the program to the T is estimated at $62 million in its first five years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says migrants continue to stream into the city and it's falling to local governments to find them a place to live. Who says national immigration policies are not sufficient? Here's WBUR Simone Rios. 
More than 100 people, including young children, have been sleeping on the floor at Logan Airport. Wu says the city is exploring ways to provide temporary shelter to the migrants, though she's concerned about the city's limited shelter resources, which are also needed by Boston residents. The federal immigration system is having people fall through the cracks and then the actual operational details of how to keep people safe while they are waiting for an answer on whether they can benefit and go through that legal process, that is falling to states and cities everywhere. A bipartisan group in Congress is working on a package to address the immigration problem, though former President Donald Trump is lobbying Republican allies to kill the deal. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. The union that represents correction officers at the state prison in Concord is asking Governor Healy to put on hold her plan to close the prison. Healy said yesterday that MCI Concord will shut down by this summer because of a decline in the number of inmates. She says the closure will save $16 million and spare the state from having to spend $190 million to improve the 140-year-old facility. Leaders in the Massachusetts Correction Officers Federated Union say the move could put its members in harm's way. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Donfoot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project at house or donfoot.com. Beauty on time. Cloudy and not too chilly overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-30s. For tomorrow, good chance of rain during the first part of the day. Lots of clouds after that. Temperatures in the low 40s. Staying in the low 40s for Saturday and for Sunday as well. Clouds on Saturday. Clouds and rain on Sunday. 41 degrees now in Boston at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Donald Trump testified for just minutes today in his own defense in the defamation lawsuit brought by writer Eugene Carroll. Carroll sued Trump after he called her a liar when she went public with her account of sexual assault. And as a warning, we will mention explicit details in this conversation. Carroll is now seeking damages for the loss to her reputation, and she's looking to punish Trump for his verbal attacks. NPR's Andrea Bernstein was in court today. Hi there. Hey, Juana. Andrea, describe the scene if you can. There had been a full morning of testimony. I'll get to that in a minute. And then promptly after lunch, out of the presence of the jury, Judge Lewis Kaplan told the former president he was not allowed to relitigate the findings of the jury in Carroll's first trial last spring. Trump chose not to testify in his own defense in that trial, so he will not have a chance to deny the assault allegations to a jury, which, based on his outburst inside the courtroom, he seemed to want to do. This is pretty graphic, but as the judge put it, it is established that, quote, Mr. Trump, in fact, sexually abused Ms. Carroll by forcibly inserting his fingers into her vagina. When Kaplan said this, Trump said, ugh, loudly. But Kaplan was being very clear. He did it. And that's the law. 
Then there was a back and forth with Trump's attorney, Alina Haba, where Judge Kaplan wanted to know exactly what Trump was going to say. And while she was speaking, Trump said from the defense table, I never met the woman. I don't know who the woman is. Did the judge succeed in keeping Trump from speaking out of order in front of the jury? Basically, yes. At about 2.15 p.m., Trump walked heavily from the defense table to the witness stand, put up his right hand, and swore to tell the truth. The first question was about recorded pretrial testimony Trump had given in Carroll's first case that had been played earlier in the day, in which he was questioned, among other things, about saying Carroll was, quote, not his type from the Resolute desk in the Oval Office. Did Trump stand by this deposition, he was asked? 100% was the answer. Did you deny the allegations because Ms. Carroll made an accusation? Yes, I did. Did he instruct anyone to harm Ms. Carroll? He answered, I just wanted to defend myself, my family, and the presidency. Though the jury was instructed to disregard everything after defend myself. After a few questions from the plaintiffs, Trump left the stand. The defense rested. The plaintiffs offered no rebuttal. Then the jury was told there will be closing arguments and instructions tomorrow. They'll get the case by lunchtime. Then Trump left the courtroom with his large entourage saying as he walked down the courtroom aisle, this is not America, which he repeated three times. Okay, and Andrea, what else happened today? The plaintiffs called Eugene Carroll's former editor at Elle, who described her as, quote, a truth teller and one of the most popular writers. The defense then called Carol Martin, a former news anchor in New York City in the 1990s and a friend of Carroll's. She'd written a text message to a third party saying that Carroll was, quote, Act, was acting like, quote, Santa at a Christmas parade, that is, enjoying the attention. Martin acknowledged those words, but said she regretted writing them and other texts like that, that they didn't reflect, reflect her feelings. All right. Um, last thing here. Any bets on when the jury might decide? So I have given up making predictions in this case, but I will say all the jury has to decide is how much Carol should be paid. The plaintiffs have so far asked for not less than $10 million. NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Andrea, thank you. Thank you. There's growing demand for minerals like lithium and cobalt as the world ramps up manufacturing of electric vehicles and solar panels. It's estimated more than half of these minerals are on or near lands of indigenous peoples, including in Arizona. That's where NPR's Julia Simon begins our story. Ivan Bender takes a net and removes algae from a bright turquoise hot spring in the Arizona desert. It's an ongoing kind of thing here, this algae. The springs are called Hakumwe, and for the Walpai tribe, the waters and this land are sacred and healing. Bender is a Walpai tribal member and caretaker of the springs in Wikiup. This is important right here. It's for the Wikiup generation to come. And, and this is their water. But, he says, mining activity threatens this water. There is a seatbelt. Okay, great. Bender took me out on his ATV through the desert. Okay, okay. To a spot with holes in the dusty earth. In recent years, mining operations have drilled these exploration holes for lithium, a key mineral in climate solutions like electric vehicle batteries. Bender says it impacted the spring water. When they drilled that, that's what happened to our water. It went down. It went down. This is where it all started. Experts say growing demand for energy transition metals will have huge impacts on indigenous groups around the world. 
Research finds more than half of projects for these minerals are on or near indigenous people's lands. The mining company with activity near the springs, Arizona Lithium, declined to directly talk to NPR. It sent a statement through a partner saying local tribes, quote, have strong cultural affiliation with these areas, and it's proceeding to engage with these communities on their concerns. But mines have a big footprint, and Galina Angarova knows this well. She's a member of the Hurrit Nation of the Buryat peoples in Siberia. Air pollution, water pollution, noise pollution, loss of biodiversity, loss of water. She says mines on native lands have often led to more sexual violence and missing and murdered indigenous women. I've been to these places. I have seen it. And now you have a whole host of issues because mining never comes alone. A core issue for indigenous groups is the lack of input for where and how the mining happens and if it happens at all. There is a possible solution, something called free, prior, and informed consent. So it is the touchstone document. This is Kate Finn. She leads First Peoples Worldwide at University of Colorado Boulder and is a member of Osage Nation. Finn says this right to consent helps ensure Native groups get a say at all steps in the mining process. If businesses want to truly respect the rights of Indigenous peoples, this is the map to do so. But in the U.S. and most of the world, it's not mandatory. That's why Angarova and Finn are working to get electric vehicle makers to codify Indigenous peoples' rights in their supply chains. Here's Finn. Because automakers are quickly becoming the fastest users of these minerals. Indigenous leaders say they've had success. Angarova says Tesla approved a policy that expects their suppliers to respect Indigenous people's rights. The mining industry says higher standards for car companies has had a trickle-down effect. Fabiana Peak directs community engagement for mining exploration company Cobalt Metals. She says as they produce these metals... We're going to be part of that due diligence process for car companies. Peek says Cobalt engages Native communities in Canada, Australia, and Namibia before they start exploring, not after, which she says has been the industry standard. But Angarova says most mining companies have a long way to go in their relationship with Indigenous communities. She says the transition to a greener economy could change that. To me, the question is, is the green transition going to be the same old thing that is presented in a new package, or are we going to do it the right way? For Bender of the Wallapai tribe, the Australian mining company hasn't been doing things the right way. He's waiting to see what they do next. Julia Simon, NPR News. And support for this reporting was provided by Stanford University's Bill Lane Center for the American West. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Asia Markey first started thrifting when she was a kid, visiting secondhand stores with her mom and grandma because they were on a tight budget. And thrifting helped her figure out her own personal style. When she went to college, people noticed. People just really, oh, where'd you get that? Up thrift store. Oh, I love those shoes. Thrift store. So it just became something that I was you know, being known for. Now, Marky has a group that she started called the Thrift Sisters Club in Dayton, Ohio, where she and a group of women meet monthly and thrift together. 
Whether you want to find some new sweaters for winter, are interested in shopping more sustainably, or you're trying to explore your own personal style, buying secondhand can be a good option, but it can be daunting. So NPR's Life Kit did an episode on thrifting, and our producer Mia Venkat brings us some tips from that episode. So you've decided you want to go thrifting. Now what? Well, first step is having a strategy. Thrift stores are sometimes huge and disorganized. So Asia Marquis says to look for fashion inspiration online before you head out. You want to look up different celebrities, maybe. Look on Pinterest. Look through magazines. Look at TV shows. She brings screenshots and references as a way to focus on specific items she's hoping to find. She also suggests having a thrift wish list. Think of three to five items you're looking for. Baggy jeans, a pool cover-up, a work shirt... Narrow your search and start in those sections first. And you can navigate the thrift store in a more relaxed fashion as opposed to just kind of looking around like, oh my God, it's just too much. And then you end up walking out and leaving with nothing. When you can, shop for items out of season because fewer people will be looking for them. You can also try going on a Monday or Tuesday because often weekends are when stores get most of their donations. Stephen Emery started thrifting in high school but got more into it a few years ago in an effort to be more sustainable. When thrifting, he stays away from specific colors. I know that I do not look good in yellow. It flushes out my skin. I don't look good in pinks or reds. So I just avoid those colors altogether, and I look at the colors that I know will complement me the best. Look at the clothes you already love for inspiration. What silhouettes are flattering on your body? What textures and fabrics do you like? What brands tend to fit you the best? Lean on that knowledge so you can go through the racks faster. You can also save yourself a ton of time by just knowing your measurements and bringing a tape measure with you so you can assess the clothes for yourself. If you could just know your measurements and you have a tape measure, you can go so much faster through the thrift store, right? Because then you have to remove the part of trying stuff on. Mary Jacobs is a secondhand stylist, meaning she thrifts and curates clothes for other people. She says you don't need all your measurements, but the two main ones are chest and hip. But in the end, the best way to know something will fit is by just trying it on in the store. Make sure you wear something that you can try other clothes on over. And if the fit is only a little bit off, Stephen Emery says think about getting it tailored to make it just right for you. That's always my goal with thrifting. I want everything I have to be unique and like specifically me. Next, Asian Marquis says do a quality check. Is it going to rip? Is it going to pop? Is it going to stretch? Look at the stitching. Make sure the piece is not about to fall apart. Scan for obvious wear and tear like pilling and stains. And don't forget to check the crotch in the pits. And looking at the tags tells you a lot about a garment's quality, especially its fabric makeup. Fabrics that are 100% of a natural fiber, like cotton, silk, and linen, are harder to come by, but they're a lot higher quality, so keep an eye out for them. I honestly can see linen a mile away now. (laughs) Finally, there's an element of chance when thrifting. You could go every day for a week and find nothing you love. But with patience, luck, and maybe these tips, you could strike gold on even a spontaneous trip. Mia Venkat, NPR News. Life Kit has a full episode with more tips about this topic. Check it out at npr.org slash lifekit. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in 20 minutes on All Things Considered. The economy continues to outperform, defying forecasters who feared that higher interest rates would lead to a recession. The latest figures are coming up. And in five minutes, remembering the singer who's got a brand new key. Bruins and Celtics will both be in action tonight. The Bees hope to bounce back after a tough loss last night. They'll be up north to face the Ottawa Senators at 7 o'clock. Celtics are also on the road. They're down south in South Florida to meet the Miami Heat. Tip-off is set for 7.30.
It's 549. Winter in Boston is no joke. Sometimes the city is covered by a beautiful blanket of snow. And sometimes the streets and sidewalks are treacherous because of thin layers of ice. We have a few tips from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston to help you survive and thrive in winter. First things first, bundle up when you're outside shoveling or salting. A warm coat with a hat and gloves, insulated boots, thick socks, and lightweight long johns can go a long way. Now for the fun. Slap on ice skates at the Boston Common Frog Pond or other neighborhood rinks, but stay away from any body of water that might not be fully frozen. Or grab a sled and hit the hills. You'll find companions in just about any neighborhood park from the Emerald Necklace to Ronan Park to Bunker Hill. One, two, three. For more on enjoying winter in Boston, head to WBUR.org slash field guide. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Things are tense between China and the island of Taiwan. Beijing is ramping up economic pressure on the island to force it into a more subservient relationship to China. And to tell the story of how China's doing that, we begin with a pineapple. NPR's Emily Fang takes it from here. This past spring, Taiwanese policymakers issued an urgent call to action. They had discovered China had gotten its hands on a Taiwan bread fruit called the mango pineapple. Now the fruit was being grown and sold in China. Taiwan's Deputy Agricultural Minister Chen Junji called it blatant robbery. And he told NPR this kind of what he calls agricultural IP transfer has been happening for decades. Taiwan's rice, orchids, tea, beans, and mushrooms have all somehow been transplanted in China. In 2017, I had the opportunity to go to China and visit their plant research institute. And they had all of Taiwan's plant variants. They flaunted them to us. And they weren't ashamed about having Taiwan intellectual property at all. But the transplantation of the mango pineapple hit especially hard because pineapples are political. 97% of Taiwanese pineapple exports used to go to China until 2021, when China announced a ban on the most common type of Taiwan pineapple. Pineapples have become the latest victim of the worsening relationship between Taiwan and China. China said the fruit was full of pests. Taiwan denied it and said the ban was economic coercion, pressuring their voters towards more China-friendly policies or lose even more access to the China market. And eating pineapples in Taiwan became an act of patriotism. The foreign minister dubbed the tropical fruit the freedom pineapple. And in the past two years, it's become a symbol of Taiwan identity. And few people know more about pineapples than this man, Wan Qingshan. He is the scientist who created the mango pineapple. He also named the new fruit, saying its mouthfeel and fragrance reminded him of a mango. Hence the name. Mr. Guan's life work is developing new pineapples. I met him in his office in southern Taiwan, surrounded by sprouts and, yes, plates and plates of freshly cut pineapple. He says he spent about a quarter of a century 
developing the mango pineapple. He says he went through rounds and rounds of selection and planting to get there. But now his career's work is being sold and marketed by someone else. And it is likely farmers from Taiwan who brought the fruit over to China. That's according to Wang Heng, the chairman of a county-level pineapple association in China's Hainan province, a tropical island very similar in climate to that of Taiwan. Our Taiwanese compatriots really contributed a lot because some 80 percent of the fruits we grow here in Hainan Island are from Taiwan. Taiwan plant varieties have really carried our entire fruit industry here. And Wong confirmed Hainan farms have been growing Taiwan's beloved mango pineapple since 2017. Taiwanese farmer Lin Shuyang says the biggest reason he's seen other farmers in Taiwan move to China with their know-how is because of the money. In Taiwan, they have to work so hard, but the profit margins are thin. In China, they're higher. Why would you do the same thing for less money? And China wants Taiwanese farmers to come. Last September, China released a new economic plan calling for greater integration between China and Taiwan, and agriculture is a big part of the plan. Chinese pineapple sellers like Wang say they've done nothing wrong. They believe Taiwan belongs to China, and so do Taiwan's plants. People may not want to hear this, but China's Hainan is actually the best suited for growing pineapples, not Taiwan. You can only claim something as your local specialty if it's fixed and unmovable. Meanwhile, Taiwan has no legal means to push back against this economic coercion. China blocks Taiwan from joining the United Nations, which oversees international agricultural IP issues. In 2017, China cut off an agricultural policy exchange it had with Taiwanese officials. And so, in a few weeks, starting in March, Taiwan will start limiting the kinds of seeds and saplings people can take off the island in response to the mango pineapple mess. Back in his office, Mr. Quan, the pineapple scientist, says he feels helpless knowing the fruits of his work are in China. Do I care that China is planting my pineapples? It's hard to answer this question because my opinion can't change anything. And so he immerses himself in his fields every day. Pointing out leaf sizes and colors to me. But cross-strait tension, even here, is unavoidable. Because in Taiwan, fruit is a matter of geopolitics. Emily Fang, NPR News, Jiayi, Taiwan. The American folk singer Melanie has died. Beautiful people. Born Melanie Sofka in 1947, the singer got her start in music at a young age. My entire family sang and played instruments. My mom was a jazz blues singer, and my uncle George was a union protest song singer. In a 2020 interview with the writer Tim Quinn, she said her first instrument was a ukulele, though she later became known for playing guitar as she sang at coffee houses in New York's Greenwich Village during the folk revival. In 1969, she got her first big break when she played Woodstock. She described the experience in a 1991 interview with the talk show host Kathy Fountain. You were the baby of Woodstock, the darling of Woodstock. Yeah. Oh, God, it was hard to live down to. Um, <laughs> Why? I was, well, I wasn't really a, a hippie. I was an oddball. 
And that was the difference. You see, I didn't quite fit in the little niche of... Um, so you um, didn't live in a commune or anything? No. no. Now I do. I have a family. <laughs> her set at Woodstock also inspired her first U.S. hit, 1970s Lay Down, Candles in the Rain. She later recalled that by the time she took the stage at Woodstock, it had started to rain, and the festival announcer told the crowd to light candles to keep the rain away. So as she sang, the hillside in front of her began to blaze with candlelight. Melanie's 1971 hit, Brand New Key, brought the singer even more acclaim. But the tune's lyrics sparked controversy. Melanie told singer Michael Jonathan in 2004 that while many heard references to sex or drugs, it wasn't about any of those it things. To me, and I, I was remembering roller skating. I remembered the scent of Astoria, Queens, where I grew up, and I was remembering roller skating in the key that you know tightened the skates so you wouldn't fall in which I often did. <laughs> Melanie Sofka stayed active as a musician well into her later years and released more than 30 albums before she died Tuesday at age 76. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases in a new era of human health Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Mathnasium, who believes that every kid can be a math kid, Mathnasium offers customized math instruction intended to challenge advanced kids and help struggling kids get better. Learn more at mathnasium.com. From Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person at yptc.com slash NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Tomorrow morning at 11, Governor Moore Healy will join us live. All roads in Massachusetts go through her new proposed state budget, including the migrant crisis and the national election. Listen live tomorrow at 11 o'clock right here on the radio and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. I'm here and now host Deepa Fernandez, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. economy is still showing muscle. Consumer spending remains high, in part because many Americans have seen their paychecks grow. People's wages are now rising consistently stronger than inflation, so their purchasing power is improving. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also coming up in the U.S. Senate, talks between Republicans and Democrats to reach a deal on border security are near collapse, as top Republicans say they shouldn't accept a deal if it is opposed by Donald Trump. And tonight, Alabama plans to execute Kenneth Smith. 
The state is preparing to put him to death using nitrogen hypoxia, the first time it's being used in this country to put an inmate to death. Smith's spiritual advisor says of the method, we simply cannot normalize the suffocation of each other. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. After months, Senate negotiators are close to finalizing the text of an immigration and foreign aid deal proposal. But there are new worries. Potential opposition from Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump could spoil months of work. More from NPR's Eric McDaniel. Negotiators agree that the status quo at the U.S. southern border is not sustainable. As many as 10,000 people present themselves to border protection agents each day, overwhelming available resources. But in a presidential campaign year facing opposition from GOP frontrunner Donald Trump, there are real questions about whether a deal can get done. Democratic negotiator Chris Murphy indicated the ball is now in Republicans' court. We have produced a compromise that they asked for with the chosen negotiator that they appointed. And it is now up to them as to whether they want to accept the agreement. Draft text of the deal is expected as early as next week. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, the Capitol. Donald Trump testified very briefly in his own defense in the defamation case brought by writer Eugene Carroll today. NPR's Andrea Bernstein has more from the courthouse. Out of the presence of the jury, Judge Lewis Kaplan sternly instructed the defense Trump could not deny that he had sexually assaulted Carroll in a department store dressing room in the 1990s because a previous jury already found that he had. He did it, and that's the law, Kaplan said. Have you personally made him aware of the restrictions on his testimony, he asked Trump's attorney, Alina Haba. While she was trying to answer, Trump could be heard to say from the defense table, I have not met the woman. I don't know who the woman is. But on the witness stand, he said only that he stood by a taped deposition he gave to Carol's lawyers and that he denied her allegations from the White House because, quote, I just wanted to defend myself. After a brief question from Carol's lawyers, it was over in minutes. Trump left the courtroom repeating, this is not America. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. Alaska Airlines says the grounding of some Boeing planes will cost the carrier $150 million. NPR's Joel Rose reports Alaska is pushing Boeing to improve production quality after a fuselage panel blew off one of its jets in midair earlier this month. Alaska Airlines said in a call with investors that the grounding of its Boeing 737 MAX 9 fleet would reduce the airline's profit by about $150 million and slow its growth plans for the year. Alaska CEO Ben Minicucci says the airline will continue to buy planes from Boeing, but it wants to see big improvements in quality control. We're going to hold Boeing's feet to the fire to make sure that we get good airplanes out of that factory. Regulators at the FAA have approved an inspection and maintenance process for the grounded Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes. Alaska hopes to get some of its grounded planes back in the air Friday and gradually get all 65 of them flying by early February. Joel Rose, NPR News. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 242 points to close at 38,049. The Nasdaq rose 28 points. The S&P 500 was up 25 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Democratic leaders in the Massachusetts State Senate plan to vote on their gun law reform bill a week from today. Supporters said this afternoon that the bill will give local agencies that administer gun licenses access to some of an applicant's mental health hospitalization history. They also said it'll cut down on untraceable guns and expand the existing red flag law. The reform bill has the support of the Massachusetts Chiefs of Police Association, which does not back a gun reform bill in the House. Association President Eric Gillis calls the Senate version concise. At the end of the day, it has to be enforceable. Whatever this body does, 
has to be carried out by people in our sphere. And um, when it's distilled down and, and simple and makes sense, it's going to work. The Senate bill would ban carry guns, carrying guns in most government buildings, but allow local communities to opt out of that policy. Boston City Councilor Ed Flynn is back from a five-day trip to Israel. WBUR Simone Rios caught up with him to learn more about it. Flynn says he was invited by the nonprofit American Israel Education Foundation to meet military and civic leaders. The foundation is affiliated with a pro-Israel lobbying group. The former council president says he wanted to bear witness in the wake of the October 7 attacks by Hamas. It's a very difficult time in Israel. But what I also saw is the resiliency of the army, the people, the, the, the everyday workers doing whatever they can as part of the war effort. In an ethics filing, Flynn reported the trip cost $21,000, covered by the nonprofit. The filing says Flynn was one of 15 leaders on the trip. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Regular service on the green line of the T between Lechmere, Union Square, and Medford Tufts is expected to resume by Monday. MBTA General Manager Phil Eng said today contractors have repaired more than eight miles of track so far on the green line extension. Last fall, the T announced tracks on the extension were too close together. That led to speed restrictions and several closures on the line for repairs. In the Boston area now, 40 degrees cooler weather moving in tonight. Temperatures in the mid-30s. For tomorrow, rain in the morning should taper off in the afternoon. About 42 degrees at its peak tomorrow. The weekend's looking generally cloudy with temperatures stuck in the low 40s. This is WBUR. It's 6.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Since the start of the war in Gaza, tensions between Israelis and Palestinians have been high, and that's especially true for those studying at Israeli universities. In a minute, we'll hear how the conflict is affecting students and teachers at one school. But first, we got some surprisingly good news today about the U.S. economy. It grew faster than expected in October, November, and December. That capped off a year in which the economy grew by 3.1 percent. And that would be strong enough growth at any time, but especially in a year of high interest rates, which many forecasters worried would tip the economy into recession. And what's more, even as the economy is growing rapidly, inflation continues to moderate. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott. Hi, Juana. So, Scott, the U.S. economy has been consistently outperforming expectations. Tell us what's behind that. Well, the biggest factor is you and me and all of our friends and relatives who keep on shopping and going out to eat and taking trips and generally just keeping cash registers ringing. Uh, Chief economist Mark Zandi, who's at Moody's Analytics, says part of what is fueling all that strong personal spending is a very solid job market. Uh, The economy is adding lots of jobs and paychecks keep getting bigger. Good news on that front is that people's wages are now rising consistently stronger than inflation. So their purchasing power is improving. And of course, that's the fodder for spending. If people's real incomes are improving, uh, they're going to spend and that's what they're doing. 
Consumer spending accounts for almost 70% of the overall U.S. economy, and it's proven to be remarkably durable. Uh, We saw blockbuster growth in the late summer and early fall, and that only slowed down a little bit as we moved into the winter months. The holiday shopping season turned out to be very strong, and that means the economy entered the new year with pretty good momentum, at least as far as consumers are concerned. And Scott, if household spending makes up nearly 70% of the economy, how's the other 30% doing? It's doing pretty well uh, as well. Government spending rose in the fourth quarter. So did business investment. Exports were also up. Sandy says even the housing market, which has certainly been weighed down by high interest rates, was not as big a drag in the fourth quarter as you might have expected. Housing usually in a high rate environment gets crushed. It's the thing that drives the economy into the ground, into a recession. And that just didn't happen this go around. Mortgage rates did come close to 8% back in October before falling back a little bit. Uh, And as a result, a lot of people who already own homes didn't want to sell and give up their cheaper mortgages. But on the flip side, builders have been putting up a lot of new homes. And thanks to all that new construction, housing actually made a small positive contribution to GDP growth at the end of last year. The reason interest rates are so high is the Federal Reserve is trying to crack down on inflation. How's that going? You know, the numbers in today's report are actually pretty encouraging on that score. Uh, They show that core prices, that is, the prices for everything but food and energy, which bounce around a lot, rose at an annual rate of just 2% over the last six months. That is right in line with the Fed's inflation target. Uh, Inflation has generally been trending down over the last year. And if that continues, then we would expect the central bank to start cutting interest rates sometime later this year. Now, given the strong job market and the very strong GDP growth, I think the Fed's going to be careful not to cut rates too quickly. Uh, Policymakers don't want to take their foot off the brake only to have inflation come roaring back. But right now, there doesn't seem to be any sign that the economy is boiling over. Rather, it's on a nice, steady simmer. Uh, Inflation's easing up. Unemployment is staying very low. That's kind of the textbook definition of a soft landing. NPR's Scott Horsley. Scott, thank you. You're welcome. Jewish and Palestinian citizens of Israel have shared an increasingly tense space since the Gaza war began. That's especially true at Israel's universities, which teach both Arab and Jewish students. NPR international affairs correspondent Jackie Northam reports from Israel's northern port city of Haifa. The University of Haifa sits high on a hill overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, offering spectacular views for its 17,000 students. This is Israel's most diverse university. About 40% of the students here are Palestinian citizens of Israel. It's a place where you can hear both Hebrew and Arabic, and where learning overrode many of Israel's deep divisions. That is, until October 7th, when Hamas militants attacked Israel. The university felt the impact immediately, when some Arab students were accused of posting pro-Hamas comments on social media. Daniel Amar, a Jewish student, is the head of Haifa University's student union. For example, one student uploaded a story, which in the story you can see uh, IDF vehicle burn, military vehicle from the October 7th, and she wrote, the happiest day of my life. We can't accept it. The university suspended at least eight Arab students for their social media posts and launched a disciplinary review. Amar says it was the correct move. It's a clear statement, okay, from the university that we will not support terror and terror supporting in our campus. 
but others disagreed with the disciplinary actions. Twenty-five professors from the university, many of them Jews, wrote a letter to the rector urging the school to investigate what happened rather than automatically throwing the Arab students out. Assad Ghanem, a professor of comparative politics, was one of the Arab members of the faculty who signed the letter to the rector. He also wrote privately about his concerns to the chairman of the university's board of directors. And he was very negative in his reaction towards me because I think that he thinks that the university should be part of the war situation, of the emergency situation, which is, I think, that it's a mistake. The university should be part of thinking about ways of reconciliation and helping our students. The backlash against Arab students stretches far beyond Haifa University. The estimation of the Arab-Palestinian Student Union is around 150, 160 cases. Adi Mansour is a political and civil rights attorney with Adala, an organization which advocates for the rights of Palestinian citizens of Israel. He says it's not unusual to see a crackdown against Arabs whenever there's a war with Hamas or Hezbollah. But Mansour says this is the worst he's seen it. In previous wars, we've never seen universities and colleges operate in such a way against their own students. This is by far the first time that we see this large amount of disciplinary procedures against students for expressing themselves. On a clear afternoon earlier this month, Arab and Jewish students sat side by side enjoying an outdoor lunch. It looked peaceful, but fear and anti-Arab sentiment is being whipped up on social media by students belonging to far-right organizations on campus, according to Yuval Schlizel, with Standing Together, a social movement working for peace between Jews and Arabs. The far-right organizations, they started to convince the other students, now we, jo- we don't just fight against the terror organization Hamas, we also need to fight against the terror supporters, so-called, here in Israel. And for them, every Arabs and every Jew that don't think like them is potentially terror support. Some Arab students say they feel unwelcome at the university because of the war. To be honest, I feel very uncomfortable being in the university. 21-year-old Ibrahim is an Arab first-year law student at Haifa University. He has Palestinian friends in Gaza and feels passionately about the soaring civilian casualties there. But he's afraid to express himself or use his last name because he may be seen as an enemy. If I say that I'm against the genocide, I'm against the war in Gaza, if I say I'm against killing civilians in Gaza, I feel like that would classify me in their eyes as a terrorist. The concern and fear are also felt by teachers. Some Jewish students won't attend classes taught by professors they deem as not forcefully condemning the October 7th attack. Some teachers have been threatened by students, including Ghanem. He says one threatened to punch him, another to deface his office. Ghanem had a security camera installed and worries about repercussions if he talks about the war or Arab-Jewish relations. I think that now I'm more sensitive and I'm limiting myself in certain expressions and this will harm my ability to teach my students. I want to feel more free, more confidence that I can say anything within certain limitation. Earlier this month, the university reversed its decision and reinstated the Arab students while the investigation is carried out. Student Union President Amar is angry with that decision. 
He's a reservist and takes time away from his studies to fight Hezbollah militants along Israel's northern border. I can tell you that in the last couple of weeks, I almost died for like three or four times, like actually close to death, okay? And I can't even imagine a situation which I sit in my class and next to me sit a person that want me to die. I, I can't do it. He don't deserve to learn here. As an army reservist, Amar carries a pistol tucked into his waistband. Other reservists on campus are required to carry their army-issued assault rifles. This worries Ibrahim, the Arab student. Like, in what university do students come with weapons, right? When I go to a hall, I think twice before saying anything because the one sitting next to me holds a gun. So how can I feel comfortable, right? The University of Haifa is expected to make a decision in the near future about the fate of its eight Arab students. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Haifa. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks a lot for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in business news this evening, Black Americans are often left behind when it comes to health care access and health care outcomes. There's no quick fix for a lot of these problems. And so, you know, one, two, three months of work is not going to fix the problem. A physician tells us where the healthcare system falls short, coming up in about 10 minutes. Stocks were up on Wall Street today as news came the economy is still growing. The Dow rose more than six-tenths of a percent. S&P closed higher for a sixth day. It was up more than a half percent. And the Nasdaq rose nearly two-tenths of a percent. A Boston-based private equity firm now owns Chapstick. Yellowwood Partners says it acquired the iconic brand from a British company for $510 million. The deal is expected to close by the end of June if regulators give their okay. Yellowwood also owns such brands as Suave Shampoo and Dr. Scholl's. It's 619. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Generally cloudy tonight, windy, not too chilly, temperatures in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, good chance of rain during the first part of the day. Clouds hang on after the rain dries out, temperatures in the low 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR, 41 degrees now at 620. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Forester Wilderness with 9.2 inches of ground clearance and all-terrain tires for off-road capability. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From Workday, 
With AI at the core of its system, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Tonight, Alabama is set to execute someone using an untested method. It would be the first state to kill an inmate using what Alabama calls nitrogen hypoxia. Opponents say the method is experimental and cruel. Kenneth Smith was convicted and sentenced to death for his role in the murder-for-hire plot to kill Elizabeth Sennett. The victim was beaten and stabbed to death in 1988. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett has been covering the case and joins us from Montgomery. Hi there. Hey, Ari. Where do things stand now with this execution? Well, the execution was scheduled for 6 p.m. local time, but that's more like a guideline. And, Ari, it's likely to drag into the night, as there are still appeals happening right now to try to stop this execution. We know from our NPR producers on the ground that some protesters have arrived at the prison in Atmore, which is just north of Mobile, and that's where Alabama carries out its executions. Ari, there's also incredible international interest in the story. We know that the family of Kenneth Smith has been fielding calls from all over around the world, and the U.N. has spoken out against this method of execution. So there's a lot of attention on this. Let's talk more about that method. This is relatively new. The state calls it nitrogen hypoxia. What is it? Well, Ari, this is the first time in the United States that an inmate, and Smith in this case, will have a mask strapped to his face and be administered pure nitrogen gas. Now, state officials say that 30 to 45 seconds later, he will become unconscious, and soon after they say he will die from oxygen starvation. And in court records, the state of Alabama maintains it will be a quick and painless death. But many people are concerned that it will be the opposite of quick and painless. What have people in Alabama been telling you? Well, you know, I was at a rally earlier this week on the steps of the Alabama Capitol, and a number of groups had gathered to protest this execution, which they're calling untested and experimental. They were ringing a bell, Ari, that was previously a gas canister, and they were praying. And while I was there, I spoke with Unitarian Universalist Reverend Lynn Hopkins, who echoed much of what I heard coming from those who spoke. Alabama has a lot of tragic, brutal moments in its history, but this one is exceptional in that the government is actively pursuing death above all reasonable objections in a method that obviously has not been tested. It is a lethal act. And Kyle, this is the second time Alabama is attempting to put Kenneth Smith to death. And wasn't it he who asked for this method of execution? He did, Ari. In 2022, Smith's execution was the last of three botched or problematic lethal injections Alabama attempted to carry out. So I'm trying not to get executed again by lethal injection. Smith actually suggested nitrogen hypoxia, which had been approved by the legislature, and that's the term that they gave it. But at the time, there were no protocols. Late last year, the state issued a 41-page protocol, and so Smith's execution was set for today. But now Ari, his lawyers, argue that in trying to execute him again using this method, it's a violation of the constitutional amendment against cruel and unusual punishment. Well, with so many people around the country and the world watching this execution, what are the concerns about how it could unfold tonight? Well, so critics of this method say that there are a number of things that could go wrong, such as Smith vomiting into his mask or it slipping off when he attempts to pray out loud. They're also worried about other individuals near Smith, such as his spiritual advisor. If it doesn't work like they predict and it doesn't kill him, it may leave him in a vegetative state. And other states with the death penalty are are watching closely as they're all looking for alternatives to current death penalty methods. That is Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. 
Now to Capitol Hill, where bipartisan talks in the Senate on U.S.-Mexico border security are at risk of collapsing. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell indicated to fellow Republicans that it might not be possible to advance legislation if it is opposed by former President Trump. A potential border security deal is expected to carry with it long, delayed aid for Ukraine. And that is also at risk because most Republicans say they will not support Ukraine aid without a border deal. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis is in the studio now for the latest. Hi, Sue. Hey, Juana. So, Sue, I mean, these negotiations have been going on for weeks and we're making progress by all accounts. And Mitch McConnell is no ally of Donald Trump. So help me understand what exactly has changed here. Donald Trump won the New Hampshire primary on Tuesday, and even reluctant corners of the party are coalescing around him as their nominee. And it is shifting the calculus on Capitol Hill. McConnell met with Republicans behind closed doors yesterday, and he acknowledged that the politics around this have changed. And he said, quote, we don't want to do anything to undermine him, him being Donald Trump. To be clear, McConnell wants a deal here, but he's pretty clear-eyed about the political realities. Chris Murphy, he's a Democrat from Connecticut. He's been leading these talks with James Lankford, the Republican from Oklahoma. He was asked about McConnell's comments, and this morning he said Republicans are going to have to make a decision soon. I think the Republican conference is going to make a decision in the next 24 hours as to whether they actually want to get something done or whether they want to leave the border a mess for political reasons. Murphy and Langford say they're close to a deal. McConnell appeared to backtrack on those comments a little bit today, saying he supports the talks continuing. And remember, Juana, this entire negotiation was requested by Republicans who said they wouldn't support Ukraine aid without a border deal. And they're getting a lot of concessions here. So if they walk away, it could be seen as a purely political calculation. Sue, I've got a question for you about the politics of all of this. I mean, what exactly is the political incentive for Republicans here to not reach a deal, given we know how important border security and immigration issues are to the Republican base? You know, if Republicans help deliver a substantial border security bill win for President Biden, it would inoculate him from some of these political attacks. And the party would also take co-ownership of the problem at the border. Trump has been campaigning against Biden as weak on issues of national security and border security. And he does not want a House Republican majority to give Biden any substantial policy wins leading up to this election. You know, just last week on the True Social platform, Trump said Republicans should oppose any deal that doesn't meet every single Republican demand. And even if there's still a bipartisan deal to be had in the Senate, they need at least nine Republicans. It could be headed into a buzzsaw in the House. Speaker Mike Johnson has indicated he's not likely to bring something to the floor that Donald Trump opposes. And he said he speaks frequently with Trump on this very matter. Which leads me to a question here on the funding for Ukraine. If indeed there is no border deal, does that just mean Ukraine aid is completely off the table? You know, Langford said as much to reporters today. No border deal likely could mean no Ukraine money. Uh, caveat here is some Republican senators have indicated they could support Ukraine money if it was offset with spending cuts elsewhere. But $60 billion is an awful lot of money to offset. McConnell also really wants a Ukraine deal. He wants this money for Ukraine. He's been pushing for it for months. He says it's vital to U.S. national interests. There is likely bipartisan support for Ukraine aid in both chambers if they can reach a compromise. But this week is a good reminder that this is not Mitch McConnell's party anymore. NPR's Susan Davis. Sue, thank you. You're welcome. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, four years ago, after setbacks in Iowa and New Hampshire, Joe Biden needed to win South Carolina to secure his party's nomination, and the state delivered. One key to that success was black voters. But can he repeat his 2020 success this cycle as an incumbent with low approval ratings? 
the black community, the young communities are still saying, you're not listening to us. Listen to us to get our vote. That story tomorrow on Morning Edition. You can listen on the radio, on your phone, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Bruins and the Celtics are both in action tonight. The Bees hope to bounce back from a tough loss last night. They'll be up north to face the Ottawa Senators at 7 o'clock. Celtics are also on the road. They'll meet the Miami Heat in South Florida. Tip-off is set for 7.30. Cloudy tonight. Temperatures in the mid-30s should have rain tomorrow morning. Tapering off in the afternoon, about 42 degrees for a high. The weekend is looking generally cloudy. Temperatures stuck in the low 40s. This is 90.9 WBUR, 41 degrees now at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want, and Maplewood Country Day Camp, where generations have experienced the joys of summer, daily swim lessons in heated pools, and A.C. for indoors. MaplewoodYearRound.com.